do it. Damn, we're live. <sighs> Damn, we figured it out, man. Good. It's late. It's not too bad. Don't worry, we're here now. So yeah, eleven minutes late. This is disgusting. <laughs> Michael, good morning. Good morning. How you doing? Uh, my back is crazy tight. I'm 350 shows in, and this is the first time this has happened, and I want to fucking lose my mind. You know when you want everything to be perfect in the morning? <laughs> Every day. <laughs> yeah. I have see that. Com- I, I have that lot laptop over there that I run my whole system off of, and it just kind of sits here. Yeah. And it started. it's doing like a one-hour reboot or something. It says, okay, we're updating your computer. It will take 59 minutes. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. So I quickly grabbed this other laptop I have that's been brand new that's never been set up. And so I was like, oh, my God, I don't even have Chrome installed in it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh Matthew and I were talking. It's like you get to the point where you kick the update down the road so many times. Yeah, you're like five updates behind, and then it's yes. like I don't even have a, a like a starting point to fix myself. So we gotta like <laughs> we gotta figure this out. So that's where, where you found yourself. I go running into the house looking for the for whatever I don't know what just now. My wife's like, "Can you help me?" I'm like, "Yeah, I can tell I, if you're God, you can help me. Other than that, I'm screwed. <laughs> Please re- push time back eleven minutes." <laughs> there you go. Well, we're here. Hey, um, I, Michael, how how old are you? I am 35 years old. 35, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I started cro- I, I started CrossFit when I was 34. When I was 34, I got kicked out of my mom's house for the last time. Oh, yeah? And then you yeah. found CrossFit. Oh, I found, How did that yeah, I kinda, happen? I kind of I found him at the same time. Uh, there was just, you know, just some yoke dude lying about his workout, telling me he did like 100 pull-ups in a workout and just stupid shit and sprints and deadlifts. I was like, you don't have to lie. You already have a beautiful body. And then I went to the website. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> he's uh, not lying so what year was that oh si- oh six okay when did it start uh you, uh ish good question ish is t- 2000 2001 2002 2003 basically you know greg ended up having that really wealthy client who was like like um the uh, the guy owned one of the america america cup boats uh philippe con billionaire oh, okay. dude he, he patented something that was like in every cell phone for like 15 years and um he he greg trained him and his family and that guy said hey i'm going on the road and i need uh i need you to put this stuff up on a blog and greg's like what's a blog and he's like well you need a computer and greg's like what's a computer so <laughs> greg made that first post at one rich dude's request and then you know um from there you kind of know what happened first responders uh special forces the DEA, all those people started doing it and started demanding a certification from Greg. It's a great story, right? Hard work, focus, perseverance, belief. Yeah. See, I didn't, I didn't know the billionaire connection. That's really interesting. Some guys, yeah, I'm going to be on my boat. I need, I need my workouts. Put it on this thing called the internet, and we'll go from there. And then, and then when I showed up in '06, um, that was when. uh, people were just starting to put like pictures on the internet, but it was frowned upon because it slowed the upload of all the pages <laughs> and absolutely video was an absolute no, no. Yeah. Like if, if you just wanted people, if you wanted to drive traffic away, put up a big ass picture or a video. Right. But, but Greg didn't care. He was like, fuck it. We're doing pictures and video. And if people mm-hmm. get driven away, we don't care. But you know, within a year or two, it didn't matter. All, all the speeds and um, everything was working. Yeah. Now it works so good that there's some like, 
kid in China who could turn off our country for three months. The internet got so good. <laughs> yeah. With one click, it could all end for us right now. <laughs> Holy shit. What is going on? You're in a weird profession, dude. Uh, which one? I, I kind of have yes, two roles. Yes. I, so I'm oh, a professor good. and I'm a, a journalist. Oh writer, God, author. they're both so weird. They're both oh, so yeah. weird. That, no, yeah. I mean, I feel like it's strange times for a lot of professions, but maybe it's uh, extra strange for both of mine. So, would you want to be? Yeah. Would you want to be a professor, a journalist, or a cop? Hmm. <laughs> oh God. Mm. Well, I feel the like scru- sometimes I. I am scrutiny. a cop to my students. <laughs> yeah. This, yeah, this, this book you wrote, um, um, and, and I always, it's like I used to work with disabled adults and I always messed up the, uh, I would call it alcohol fetal or fetal alcohol syndrome. I always got it backwards and I do that with your book too. So I better, I'm going to look at it before I, the comfort crisis. I always want to say the crisis comfort, the comfort yeah. crisis. Uh, what a, what a cool book! And then you wrote this other book before then in 2017 with uh, Maximus Maximus Body. Yep, I did. I helped him write that. I was sort of the ghostwriter on that one. Um, yeah, I've known him for a while. He's a good guy. He's a big dude. He's, He's a beautiful body. Um, when you when you when you were y- younger and you read a Malcolm Gladwell book, did you have aspirations? I mean, I mean, how exci- he must be stoked, right? He writes such cool books. So many people buy them. Um, they're oh, yeah. fun. They're, they're easily digestible. Everyone likes it. Like even the people who don't like it, like it. And they keep reading more of his stuff. It's, it's like kind of candy for the brain, right? All the numbers and stats and stuff you can apply to your own life. Um, when your book, when you wrote your book, did you know you had something like that? Uh, well, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know if I do have something like that. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I'm, you do. Dude, well, that's good. That's a, I'll take that candy. compliment. Yeah, it's just candy. It's two stories being weaved at once, right? The story of your trip to the Arctic, and then and yeah. then the story of scientists who are who are trying to prove what I don't know if they're trying to prove, but they are proving what you're experiencing, and and you weave the two together. You you shuffle the deck together. Yeah, exactly. Look, like I've always thought, like if if we if we really just wanted pure information, right? we could just go to a textbook. Now, why doesn't anyone do that? Well, that's because mm-hmm. textbooks are boring as hell. Okay, so what isn't boring? What isn't boring is stories. Stories are how humans communicate. They're the reason that humans are the apex species we are, because we can tell each other, uh, we can communicate information about the future, about different ideas, abstract ideas in the form of stories. So stories really speak to us. So if I want to get you to a point where you can grapple with this complicated, semi-boring concept, I can get you in there with a story, right? And I mean, Malcolm Gladwell is like the expert of this, right? You read his books and they everything kind of starts with this story and you're like, what's going on here? You're kind of meeting characters. You're getting really curious. There's a little bit of suspense. And then there's this moment of change where your brain kind of goes, oh, aha, and you learn something new. Now, if he would have just started with this new concept, like, people would just be like, oh, this is kind of boring, right? If I just start telling you about numbers and data and figures, it becomes a little right. boring. But if I can get you in there with, with a tale about humans that you can identify with, all of a sudden it becomes a little more interesting. So. And, and were, you, were you ecstatic when you saw the book did so well? Yeah, you know, look, like, like writing a book I mean, is, it's a lot of work. It's crazy work. Oh, God, and it's, it's um, 
you know, you basically lock yourself in your home office for two years and you talk to sources. I go out in the world and do a lot of, you know, interesting things. So that's always fun. But a lot of it is very lonely and you're just kind of like pouring yourself into it and you have no idea. And then you just send the thing out in the world and it's like, all right, well, there's, you know, two years of 80 hour weeks and we'll see what happens, you know? And so the fact that um, it has resonated with people is super cool, super cool. Cause it, it just feels like rolling some dice. <laughs> um, you, you could get a job at Seven Eleven, or no, let's say Pete's coffee is hiring down the street from my house, 20 bucks an hour. And you could work there um, uh, eight hours a day, knowing that you'd make $160 a day before taxes. And after a year you'd be offered health insurance. I mean, there's like, you can see the goal, you can see the goals and the doors that unlock to give you benefits. And you can't see that with a book. No, you can even no. see maybe it, it costing you money. You could have spent all that time making it, publish it, maybe spend some of your own money to travel to places. And fucking next thing you know, it's like in one of those 50% off bookstores, like stacked to the to the ceiling. I don't know totally. if they still have those anymore, but I grew up in Berkeley, California. Those were everywhere. Yeah, totally. No, it's interesting. And I mean, even the book industry almost views books as like little venture capital uh, projects where, you know, they're going to buy, oh. say, 10 books and they're going to give advances to those 10 books. And they're going to expect that nine of those books are not going to make up the advance. They're probably going to lose a little bit of money on them. But they're looking for that one. Because one of them is going to make significantly more, um, really resonate with people and sell a lot. So the classic example is, um, uh, what were those? Do you remember those weird vampire books um, that were popular? And, and Rice? Apple? Um, no, they were more oh, the Twilight like, ones. Uh, yeah. The Twilight ones. Yeah. Um, that brought in like 75% of the revenue for Penguin Random House that year. Everyone <laughs> got, everyone got massive bonuses. So really, you're, I mean, that's what they're looking for, right? It's like, we're going to, we're going to buy a bunch of books. We're going to publish a bunch of books and we're hoping for that one damn vampire book to just <laughs> skyrocket us into another dimension. I didn't do Twilight. I didn't do Twilight. No, I didn't either. I mean, but a lot. But of I did, did do a little bit of Anne Rice. Did you do Anne Rice? Did you do any Anne Rice? No, no, no I didn't. She was interviewed with the vampire. That ended up being the movie that I think. Um, you may have not. God, that's so long ago. Uh, Tom Cruise and maybe Brad Pitt. It was a crazy cast. Yeah, I know the. I'm familiar with the movie. I don't think I watched it though. Is it one I should be taking in? Here? No, no. The books. Inc- the books are incredible. I mean, the books kind of swept me away. And I mm-hmm. and I'm not a fiction guy at all. Okay. I'm not a fiction guy at all. All right, I'll check it oh, out. Oh, shit, she died. Oh, no, oh, and it was shit. recently. Yeah, recently. Hey, let's see if she died of COVID. See if she died of COVID. Look real quick. I want to see. see if, she got, if she got it. Um, What are your thoughts about words? About words? Um, yeah, what, what, are your th- what do you think about words? What, what do you think words are? Do you think about what words are? Not often. I mean, I think about using them for a purpose, you know, to communicate an idea, to get, to entertain people. Um, oh, shit. To give Stroke. them information. Oh, no. Sorry, I interrupted. To give 80. people information. Um, yeah, to give people inf- information um, in a way that's engaging and entertaining. I mean, I think words are ultimately you know, how we, um, find how we communicate so we can find reward. 
in life, right? Some sort of meaning and communicate information. And, um, but in the way that I use them is, is similar in a way. I do agonize over words. I can tell you that. I mean, like, you know, I'll spend three days on a paragraph. That is not a good use of time. It's really not. Right. But like, right. I can't not do that. Right? It's like, that's my job to be a freaking psychopath about, about uh, sentence placement and how a sentence is constructed and all that kind of stuff. So <laughs> there's this, there's this guy I heard say this the other day, his name's Israel Ad- Adesanya. He's oh, the fighter. The- the fighter. And he said that the difference between LeBron James and Michael Jordan is the way they make people feel. Not mm, That's interesting. He said they're both um, – I'm paraphrasing. Sorry, Israel, if I'm fucking this up. But um, basically they're both equally as good basketball players, but the greatest is the one that made the audience feel better. And that's what he's going to do as a fighter. He's going to make the audience feel something that they've never felt before by his artistry, by his movement, by his, you know. And uh, when when you told me that you agonize over paragraph, I wonder if that's why. Because you read it and you're like, that says what I want it to say, but it doesn't feel – I don't know if it's conveying the feeling. Yeah, I think that – I mean just a single word – can totally change what happens in a person's mind as they um, read a sentence, what they, what they think of how they're viewing things. I mean, there's certain words that really sort of speak to humans. You think of like the work of um, Carl Jung and like symbols, right? There's like certain things that are just like, you hear that. And as a human, you get, um, you get this like deep sense of, something bigger, but you also can like picture that like certain things stand for things to us. So like making sure that you're using the right word is very important about how the reader perceives what is happening when you're trying to tell a story. Right. And like the English language is just has so many words and, you know, I tend to default to let's make this readable and simple, but at the same time, like, every now and then you just have to use the perfect word that might be a little more abstract for people, but they're like, Oh <laughs> wow. Right. Like I want to get you through the words quickly. Cause that's the ten- that's the type of books that, that I have always gravitated to. Like if I'm struggling to read something or kind of like my mind's going off in other places, I'm like, I'm out. I'm just, I'm out. Um, but, but books that I can just cruise through, like, what is it about them? And I think it's an ease of readability. I think there's a fact that there's a story where you want to know something happening in the future. You're also picking up new information. And so my goal is to just try and do that basically. Uh, digestible. Yeah. Digestible, digestible. I think what, I think what, um, can tend to happen, I mean, especially among, um, professors and I think too, among a lot of journalists and writers, um, nonfiction writers, is that they sometimes forget that the average person like doesn't have a lot of the context that we have. Like we're embedded in this stuff all the time, right? And I think that sometimes we default to almost trying to <laughs> impress other professors or impress other uh, journalists. You talk at like a very high level, but it's like, that's not your audience, <laughs> right? It's mm-hmm. like, 
your audience needs, and you're not bringing it down to them because that, that has like a, a strange connotation. What you're really doing is like, you're just speaking directly to them. Like you, like you would, if you were sitting at a, at a bar and having a beer or at a coffee shop. Right. Um, yeah. I feel as if Michael is part of the archaic revival movement. I dig it along with liver King, Wim Hof, functional fitness, et cetera. Logan Mars. It, go, sorry. Did you want to say something, Michael? Go ahead. Yeah, I would say that, yeah, that's an interesting uh, comment. I mean, I definitely think I definitely look at things through an evolutionary lens. I mean, I think that can tell us so much about ourselves. Like the idea of this book, The Comfort Crisis, is that you know, as the world has become more and more comfortable over time, we've lost a lot of the things that used to keep us healthy, right? So if you think about it, it's like why do people want to be comfortable all the time in the first place? Well, that's because for 2.5 million years, doing the next most comfortable, next easiest thing every single time, that gave us a survival advantage, right? When you have access to food, eat as much of it as you can, right? Uh, don't, don't move any more than you have to because you're just burning extra calories and food is at a premium. Stay out of the weather, right? You don't want to be cold. You don't want to be too hot. You just always avoid risk, right? And that worked for a long time, kept us alive. Uh, but now that the world has become so comfortable with, you know, calorie dense food everywhere, we don't have to, I mean, you could walk a thousand steps in a day and still survive, right? Risk is no longer, oh, there's a tiger lurking in the bushes, or I have to, you know, get from point A to point B across this sort of dangerous terrain. It's like presenting in front of our boss or whatever. Uh, but we still sort of fear those sorts of things. And I think this is backfiring. That's the general argument I'm making in the book. And so I look at the book looks at a handful of discomforts that we've essentially removed from our lives that used to really steal us and keep us uh, not only physically healthy, uh, but also mentally healthy as well. You know, I think that you can tie a lot of the really increasing rates of anxiety, depression, um, dissatisfaction with life with the fact that we have it so damn easy now, which seems counterintuitive, right? But it's just taken away. It's just totally removed uh, a lot of people's perspective, I think, on how there's we this, have it in the grand scheme of time and space. Yeah. Man, there's so many doors open. I don't know which one I want to travel down. Uh, we, had, we, had this, we had this guy on. He's, he was, he, he was uh, a psychiatrist. He was head of the largest psychiatric center in Stockholm. What country is Stockholm in? Sweden. Stockholm, Sweden. Thank you. And he basically said that what we are that, that the safer human beings get, um, the, that the more unsafe they get. And and he explained it. And, and I'll, I'll send you the video. He did a TED talk on it. I'm not articulating it very well right here. But basically, what we have now is a society that is completely uh, risk averse and unable to do risk assessment, which has caused a massive mass psychosis. He said he saw it about 20 years ago, but he didn't know it was going to spread so quickly. And obviously we saw it spread um, through the use of um, the confusion of what the issue versus the symptom in, in terms of COVID. I'll we'll circle back on that. But, um, and he said basically 20 years ago, the people who would come into the psychiatric center had seen horrors that he can't even tell me. Like shit that like, dude, you like, no. And right. now it's a, it's a, it's a woman whose dog got run over or it's a man whose girlfriend broke up with them and they're, and they're in the psychiatric unit. There. And I'm just like, and when I was reading your book, I was thinking of all, uh, oh yeah, this guy, this, God, this guy's so good. 
Yeah, the security junkie syndrome. So good. Yes. Thank you. I'll have to check that out. Thanks. Yeah. And I'll send you a link afterwards. It's so good. Um, there was this friend of mine in college. Um, he, he, he was from Germany and he was going back to Germany like in two weeks. And there was this girl he really liked who really liked him and they hadn't hooked up. And we were, I was going to her house for a party. I'm like, yo, dude, let's go. And he's like, nah, I'm not going. I go, why? He goes, cause I don't want to hook up with her. I go, what do you mean? I'm like, he's like, dude, I really like her. I'm like, so what? Dig deep into that. And he's like, no, I'm like, I'm like, why? He's like, I don't want to go home and be hurt. I'm like, you don't want to go fuck dude, hurt yourself to death. Jump on the sword, fall in love with her, make the best out of these two weeks and cry your whole fucking way back on the plane. Are you fucking kidding me? Get in there yeah. and feel that shit. And that always stuck with me, that story. And I told him, like, dude, we could die tomorrow. Yeah. Go hurt. Go fall in love with her. Make it so the next five years of your life are ruined because you're writing her letters from mm-hmm. fucking Germany. Who cares? <laughs> um, but yeah. he didn't. And he didn't. And I and I because this book that this book that you um write, it, it there it's um Obviously, we know anyone who's like hiked El Cap, the the twelve hour trip to the top and back, or is it El Cap or what is it? Half done, whatever that one is in Yosemite that everyone and their mom's done. You, that that's a great trip if you leave like at six in the morning because you go, you get to the top and back and you go through all these emotions, right? Oh yeah. So it, it's nuts. You never you know you don't even expect it. You're like I'm just gonna hike this shit and down. And then halfway up, you're having these crazy thoughts and you're pissed and then you're happy and you're angry with the people you're at, at with and then you love them and you're like, what is going on? The weirdest trip. <laughs> Yeah, dude. Totally. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Because yeah, you're you going know, too slow. You're going too fat. And we don't have to do things like that anymore. That used to be a that used to be a part of daily life, right? We used to get thrust into um, these challenges, and it was what nature was showing us. We weren't selecting this, right? Nature right, would throw right. us these challenges, and what would happen is that you know along the way we would really learn a lot about our potential. So if you fail. In the past, failure often meant death. So you had to dig deep. But each time uh, that you would dig deep, you would learn something about yourself. You'd be like, holy shit, I didn't think I was going to make it out of that one. But I did. So what does that say? I'm a little more You sound like a UFC fighter. That's why they fight. Half those guys, yeah. that's the story. They try to explain what you just explained to me. That's why they fight. Totally. To, see, yeah. to see how I'm bad it is. I'm not surprised. Yeah. And, and I think that the world, you know, the world obviously doesn't show us those sorts of things anymore now. And I think that we've lost a lot from that. So kind of going back to what you were talking about with, um, you know, the psychiatrist in Sweden and what he was observing. It's really interesting because you start to see in that 1990 about, I think it was 92, um, mental health rates among, uh, young people start to get a lot worse and a lot worse. And what the researchers think it was, is that that's when helicopter parenting really starts. The reason for that is because there was some big, um, big examples of kidnappings in the media. Now, kidnapping was actually going down, but you know, there's all these stories about terrible kidnappings in the news. And so parents are like, stop going out. Like you can't go outside alone anymore. You can't, you know, no more, like just come home at sundown thing, like hang out inside. I want to know where you are all the time. Helicopter parenting. Right. And that seems to be what has what has really kicked off a generation that has poor mental health rates. Because we know that, you know, if you have a ton of challenges and traumas in your life, like just a ton, those type of people have poor mental health. At the same time, if you have no challenge in your life and challenge is completely removed, those people have equally poor rates of mental health. There's a sweet spot where we need enough of this kind of stuff that is bad that we view as like a sort of trauma or a challenge 
because it teaches something about ourselves and that we can get through that and survive. And it gives us, um, it just tells us something about ourselves that's good, that we can handle things, you know? I think we have less of that now. The story you tell of um, Aaron Sorkin is is awesome. It oh, reminds yeah. me of my it reminds me of my childhood. None of my stories turned out as good as his, but but that that was the story of my childhood. Do you, do you want to tell that story? Yeah. So he was. Um, so Aaron Sorkin, famous screenwriter. You could be just like, no, fuck off. You tell it. <laughs> yeah, I can I, I can try if I get some of the details wrong. Um, fill I just in. read it yesterday, so so if you fuck it up, I'll tell you what you actually wrote. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be fresher. It's gonna be fresher for you. So basically, um, he lives in New York City. He's I don't know what he was doing with his life at the time, but he's young, and he lived in this apartment with some people. And he gets home one night, and no one's there. It's kind of a terrible night in New York City. You know, no one was going out on the town. There was nothing to do. The radio was broken. The TV was broken. The only damn thing in that apartment was a keyboard typewriter. So he goes, well, there's nothing else to do. I'm bored out of my mind. I might as well just sit down and, you know, start writing something. And he starts writing and he hasn't stopped from that. That's what really kicked off his career as a screenwriter. He start, he decided he's going to start writing, um, you know, screenplays for plays and TV and movies and all that sort of thing. And I think the lesson from that is that he had to face boredom, right? It's like, there's nothing to do. He doesn't have any digital media that he can just lean into reflexively. Now he says, if the TV was working, I would have sat down and just watched TV. Like that's the easy thing to do, right? Um, So in the book, I talk about, I use that anecdote in a place where I talk about uh, why boredom is actually a good thing. So the human brain evolved to be bored because it used to tell us that whatever we're doing with our time, the return on our time invested had worn thin. So let's pretend you and I are out hunting and gathering, right? We're sitting on this hill. We're like waiting for these animals to come through. Nothing's happening, but we need food tonight, right? So if we don't get food, we're going to starve. So boredom would kick in. It's this discomfort that's like, ah, we got to go do something else, right? Like, yeah, this is, I'm getting sick of this. I don't like this. Go do something else. So we'd go pick potatoes or pick berries or whatever it might be, right? So boredom used to tell us to do something. And in the past, that something used to be more productive. But nowadays when we feel boredom, what do we do? Pick up our phone. (laughs) Pick up our phone, right? We have a million really easy escapes from boredom. So the average person today, um, the data on this is crazy. And it keeps rising. Like it's it's even a higher number than since I published the book, which was in May. Uh, the average person spends 12 hours engaged with digital media. And that's from all formats. That's from cell phones, uh, TV, computers, all that kind of stuff. So I'm not saying at all that these things are inherently bad at all. I think there's a lot of great stuff online and whatever. Um, but I am saying that maybe 12 hours a day is <laughs> quite a bit, right? We've essentially killed boredom and we know that boredom has a lot of, um, pretty solid benefits. So it's associated with reductions in anxiety and depression, and it's also associated with increases in creativity. This is really badass studies where the researchers will take two groups of people and they'll let one group do whatever they want to do. You know, they'll just sit in a room and like be on their cell phone. Then they'll take another group and they'll, they'll bore the hell out of these people. And the board group always comes up with more better answers on a creativity test. Like they just smoke the group that was not bored. 
It's because uh, boredom gives your mind some time to rest, to wander, and that seems to lead to good ideas. It's one of the reasons why people tend to have their best ideas in the shower, right? You're not doing anything. Your mind's just off and wandering, and it's like the solution appears to what you were looking yeah. for. Yeah, or, 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 and I'm sure you're going to agree with this, cardiovascular activity. Go on totally. the air runner in your garage and just walk backwards on the air runner. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Watch, yes. watch that creative monster startup. Um, there's a story about a, a kid. Um, he, he was, a uh, um, he, he, um, he, he would get home from school at two and his friends didn't get home from school until three. So he'd go out in the front yard with his BMX bike and ride in circles until his friends came home. And then they would all ride bikes together. But since he had an hour of free time where he was bored every day, the first day he learned how to ride because no one was there with him, how to ride with no hands. Second day, he learned how to do wheelies. The third day, he learned how to do bunny hops. Flash forward 10 years and he's the greatest bike rider in the world because he was bored waiting around for his friends for an hour. I made that yeah. whole story up, but I thought of that story. That's not a true story, <laughs> but that is how boredom works. And I see that with my kids, my, my kid, my kids, I don't let my kids watch TV except on Friday nights and Saturday after the sun goes down. And so like my seven-year-old plays the guitar every day. He got a guitar. Mm. My, my mm-hmm. other kids now pick up drums. They now sing. They think they're going to write songs. They, um, I just see boredom is to go outside and and build a box and sit there and wait to try to catch like the neighbor's cat with a stick under it. You know what I mean? It's like, (laughs) it's fucking dope. Yeah. It's so totally. And you got to be careful, especially with boys. They'll do some fucked up shit. You can't leave them alone too long. You got to kind of have one eye on them. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's, um, but that's how kids learn about themselves. And, you know, they become more resilient by going outside and doing stuff like that. It's like when I was a kid, you know, we were allowed to go outside like all day. And so what would I do? It's like, you go to the playground, you fall, you, you hit your head. It's like, Oh, I learned not, don't do that. You know, you're going to, you're having interactions with other kids. You call some kid a shithead. He hits you in the head, in the face. And you're like, Oh, I guess I got to be nice to people now. Right. Yeah. Now all these like interactions are happening indoors. And a lot of times um, behind screens, like on social media, it's like, it's no wonder kids mental health is not doing well right now. It's like, I have a kid in one of my class, I have a class and I write about this in the book. Um, it's this big class of like 150 kids. It's a, it's a media fundamentals class. So we just kind of go over like all these different types of media and kind of history. Are you teaching that class right now? I am. Yep. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. And, um, I always pull them at the start of the semester and I say, um, who thinks they have the most screen time in this class? And, you know, a bunch of people will raise their hand. I'm like, all right, everyone raise your hand. You know, if you have, if you have, uh, eight hours, keep your hand up. If you have nine hours, keep your hand up. If you have 10 hours, keep your hand up. Yo, I had a kid last semester who had 16 hours a day on his oh. phone. 16. That is literally <sighs> all your waking hours. Does that include like listening to books and like talking on the phone and everything? So here's the thing is I go, dude, like, how is it possible that you're spending? That is, how, that is true. How is it possible? Yeah. So he just goes, TikTok, man. <laughs> just like, oh my God. Like he just is in a vortex of TikTok all day. Oh um, so yeah. so uh, there, there's this story I read in Smithsonian many years ago. I've told the story 50 times on my podcast. But if you are not using your phone like this, then you, in all kindness, you are fucking moron. So everyone who's listening to this, listen to this. I'm going to tell you something very, very fucking true right now. This Harvard professor was an entomologist. He was an artist and he was a fucking long distance runner. He would go up to his fucking cabin and he only had one bowl there and one spoon. 
He would cook his food in the bowl with that spoon, eat it out of the bowl and spoon it did, and then he would go on his run. He would run six miles with his book. Then he would stop at the pile of shit that he had planted the day before where, you know, like some mashed up bananas with poop and they would attract a certain kind of bug. He would study the bugs. He would draw the bugs. Then he would run run to the next step, check stop six miles away. He would look at the next pile of fucking concoction he made to attract a different kind of insect at a different elevation at a different temperature. He would draw those bugs. He would study their behaviors and he would go to the next and he would come home and he'd go to sleep. If you are not using social media like that, you are a fucking idiot. If you're browsing pussy on the internet you are a moron and you will never get ahead you will never be on my level i never ever 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 use instagram except to fucking troll people like michael easter and get these motherfuckers on my podcast that's it (laughs) exactly but see see, so that's that's a good point I don't look at pussy on the internet. I don't, I don't, I don't, we had, we had a, 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 um, Elliot hustle on yesterday. You make yourself great. Sorry for, sorry for the women who are listening. Maybe it's the same for you too, but if you're a man, make yourself great and you attract the pussy. We had Nick Rodriguez on here from the B team. He said the same thing. I said, how do you stay, um, not, uh, not getting distracted by women? Well, I, I don't chase women. Look at me. You can't look at me. I screwed that up, guys. I'm so lucky. I would have been in your exact position. I'm 49 now. I didn't have to worry about that. I spent my whole youth chasing pussy. It was a fucking mistake. I mean, I don't know if it's a mistake. It's fun. Girls are great. I love girls. I had so much heartbreak, and it's made me emotionally the strongest human being in the world. But, um, dude, stop using your phone for uh, entertainment. If it's not making you money or, or bringing you, like, serious, deep, creative enjoyment, like, I'm speaking to – what did you use your phone today? I got Michael Easter on here who wrote a book that was endorsed by the fucking CIA. He can call Dave Castro and be like, hey, I'm coming up to the ranch to interview you. This is the man. Use your phone for looking at pussy, you fucking dipshit. Well, that, that, that's the, Sorry, that's the lesson, right? Like, is that crazy. it's like, don't, yeah. don't, um, we're not saying like get rid of this shit entirely because there's plenty of great stuff out there. Yeah, if you're a juggler, go find just, all the greatest jugglers on fucking Instagram and only follow amen. them and and practice. Amen. That's, that's it, right? But I yeah. think that, I, I will fully admit that I think the uh, the algorithms are written to sort of work against us. But once you realize mm-hmm. that, it's like, you know, what you're looking at um, is what you're going to see. So here's yes. an example. When I was working at Men's Health Magazine, helping run the website, we used to get these complaints from people. They'd fucking write in and they'd be like, when I'm on Facebook, all you guys ever publish anymore is sex stories you go well guess what bud that's because that's all you click so that's the <laughs> look at look at mine look at mine it's just all buff dudes and pussy oh there and a go. dwarf yeah you got a watch there too okay it looks similar yeah. to mine with the watches yeah. and the yeah. fitness stuff yeah, yeah man we, yeah. we align yeah. there yeah <laughs> I think some of those stuff on the explore page too is also just based off like what if you selected male or female when you went in there, because I know that the longer I stay off the explore page or the more I'm off my phone, if I go to the explore page, the more of women and different things like that, that it'll think it'll attract me down the rabbit hole will show up too. The more I'm on it, almost the less of it goes. Maybe it's because what I'm feeding the algorithm with my clicks, but it knows, it knows how to get you in the trap. Oh yeah. There's people who sit there, there's MIT grads who sit around a room for eight hours a day thinking of how do we get these morons to click? I'm one of those morons. It works on me a lot of the time. <laughs> like, we don't when did you get your chance. first phone, Michael? When did you get your first phone? Oh, I would have been 
sometime in high school, I think, um, you know, one of the basic text phones, I like, that's one of those right. things. I always want to go back to a dumb phone and then something happens where like I get lost and I need Google maps and it's just like, oh damn, I'm oh, going to be tied but, to this thing. <laughs> but dude, this thing is so fucking beautiful. It is. They do a nice job. They do Are a really nice job. Me? Look at it. It's like a little, <laughs> it's a, it, this is a sin. This is a sin. I know. But I do I, it, but it's a sin. I know. I feel bad about it thing. too. The, the case. It would be yeah, like putting I, a bag on Angelina Jolie's face when you humped her. You'd go to <laughs> hell for that. Oh man. Um, th- there is this. There's this saying that I that I talk about a lot on this show. Um, I'm I'm going back to what words mean, and it is naming is the origin of all particular things it's in this Tao Te Ching um uh this is the Stephen Mitchell translation mm-hmm. um the the pocket edition a- and as I've gotten I always suspected that it was be- beyond true that words were magical that um you could literally like point at a woman's purse and say it's a chainsaw and a bunch of people would believe it like you could like you can really fuck with people with words and you can also do it with concepts and with theories an example would be um you we, we the media keeps saying we have a homeless problem and what that does is that points everyone to the fact that we have a homeless problem but that's not the problem we have we have a drug problem and the yeah. manifestation of it is a homeless problem and so then if you address um homelessness you will they'll, they'll never be a cure you'll never you'll never yeah. it's, it's it's the same thing um, with uh, chronic disease there's some people who actually there's still a lot of people on the planet who think we have a problem with a virus but there that's absolutely not the problem at all it, it we have a problem we have a, a lifestyle problem um, we know that because kids aren't dying i mean i don't know if you saw this morning the cdc retracted 25 percent of childhood deaths there were no childhood deaths anyway from it but oh, wow. without explanation they cut the, the number of childhood error. deaths What'd you say? It was a code error. They 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 entered coding error. I mean, it, right, right. But 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 what's weird is is anyone can see the truth, but but you have to be so careful with words. You have to be like, okay, what does homeless mean? By the way, right, that's a great right. misogi. By the way, I was homeless for two years, and then I lived in a car for five years. I, I don't know if we'll get to that in this article, but I wanted to share that with you. If you want to do a crazy misogi, there's also a movie called. Craigslist Joe. Do you know that movie? I've heard the name. I haven't seen it though. Um, It's basically a guy who just lives off of like Craigslist. Like, so he calls someone to stay with you and I'll wash your dishes. And then he's, and he just, with no money, he just does the Craigslist thing for. That's great. Dude. I love that. It's in a brilliant, uh, it's a brilliant Masogi. And then the ultimate Masogi, by the way, I know I'm all over the place, is stillness. If you really, really yeah. want to try the crate, it's Vipassana. Like, and unfortunately, Vipassana requires a vaccination now, but Vipassana is like the, I, in my in my opinion, is the, you know, and, yeah. and you touch you on have, that in your book. Loneliness is the, and boredom is the, is the place to enter. Right. And I think that, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, one thing that I've- been Sorry, I opened a ton is, of doors there. Sorry. There's a lot of doors. We'll, we'll pick one. Pick a door, okay. any door. Um, <laughs> the okay, so like I know a lot of people who you know could run a hundred miles right now, you know, and they're tough shit. Crazy. They, could, I know. they Crazy. couldn't sit. They couldn't sit inside a room with their own thoughts for ten minutes. 
So that Amazing. tells me there's a, there's a little bit of an imbalance there, right? It's right. like, what the hell are you running from, man? Right. So I think yeah. that um, one thing that I've tried to talk to people when I talk about this book is I think people hear discomfort and they go, oh, and they associate it immediately with like, oh, a hard workout. And then I went in an ice bath and then I did a sauna and it was really hot. It's like, we're, we're talking about a lot more things than that. You know, I'm not saying like, obviously that stuff is great, but we need to like uncover like all the different layers that we can get here because I think that's what ultimately is going to like round out a person and open some doors that maybe they don't want to open, but that are going to lead to a bigger benefit for people, you know? Yeah. Go tell your wife of 20 years that in the beginning of the relationship, you cheated on her for three months. What's mm -hmm. harder doing that? <laughs> yeah, we're going for a long running run. hundred miles. You want some discomfort? Yeah, Holy dude. shit. Yeah. Holy so it's, shit. uh, there's yeah, levels to this shit. There's definitely a lot of levels, you know, it's like, there, yeah. there's so many things that, you know, I think that we, we're always going to want to do the next most comfortable, easiest thing. And, um, sometimes even things that are, are uncomfortable become relatively easy for people. It's like, what's the one thing you really don't want to do? It's like that Joseph Campbell quote, right? The cave you fear holds the treasure you seek. I mean, I Ooh. think that's like so true across life. You know, it's like, what's the one thing that you're just like, I don't want to do that. That tells me you should hey, probably be doing that. Hey, I have a bad back, like a really bad back. Like when I wake mm. up in the morning, like I have to lean against the wall to take a piss. Like I can't oh, even wow. touch my knees. Yeah. It's so bad. I'm stuck. Right. And mm -hmm. then I take a really hot shower. I have a cup of coffee and I'm good to go. I can nice. touch like I, you know what I mean? Like I can touch my toes. I'll, you know, I can run and deadlift and do everything. Um, but, but I've had 20, you, you know, like I could call Kelly star at any time I wanted. I, I have 20 of the fucking best body movers, healers in the world have been on my podcast and they all offer me afterwards when we get up there. Here's my phone number. Call me. We'll fix your back. Nah, I'm good. I'm attached to this shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, how come I haven't called them? You're like, I don't know. I kind of like it. Maybe you like the process of like, there's a rebirth I, there every morning, man. It's just like fucking from, more. I'm a moron. I'm a moron. From, yeah. It's like you get 30. sounds like you get 30 years younger every morning after you, after you have your <laughs> cup of coffee. It's just like, dude, man. it's crazy. It's crazy. That is pretty wild. Um, did you, did you have any injuries sustained from that trip in the Arctic? Uh, Michael Easter went to the Arctic for uh, a month, 30 days, correct? Yep. Yep. Uh, 30 days. It, um, into no man's land, into a place uh, where, where uh, maybe other humans had never been. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's very possible because we, you get dropped off by a plane, like this, you know, plane that is the size of like a Snickers bar, basically. Leads yeah. The, the description of the plane is dope in the book. How you keep referring to the wings as duct, good, a different kind of duct tape. Oh dude, they are like you go, you, you walk, it's basically a frame, like a, a light metal frame that's wrapped in, um, I, there's a technical term for it, but it is effectively duct tape. It's like this tape that they wrap around it. You go push it, it, it goes in. I mean, it is like plasticky fabric. What's the name of the plane? Sousa will pull it up. Yeah, it's a PA Super Cub, I think is what they're called. A PA-12 Super Cub. So they were, there's this taxi? run of them. Yeah, there's this run of them made in the, I think mostly the 40s. And now they're still just like coveted. So the one that we were in had been crashed a couple times. Um, but they, <laughs> always re, they always rebuild them because they're just great. Yeah, you were in that one that was rebuilt like to 185 horsepowers and 
Yeah. Okay. So that wing is that's like that's not so, that's like just a frame with some material pulled over it tight. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I don't like that plane with the word Garth written on it. <laughs> yeah, dude. And the and the great thing too is that I mean, being a pilot for one of those planes, it selects for a certain type of person, right? Yeah, like so you, like, like you did meth in your youth and you need to get away. Yeah, it's, uh, it's totally, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of people in Alaska are going up there to kind of escape from something. And so you get kind of these pilots that are like, they're interesting characters and they're people you're like, you know, if I don't know if I would necessarily trust you with my life, but I got no other option to get out there. So please try to be responsible this ride. You know, um, it's definitely a, it's definitely a, a job that doesn't have, well, it has a lower life expectancy, I would say than a lot of other jobs. So those dudes, yeah, those dudes probably trip, don't man. even have insurance. huh? Those guys don't have insurance for that shit. <laughs> oh yeah. Who the hell knows? I don't know. We had, a, we had a pretty damn good pilot. Um, and so definitely props to, to him. Um, but yeah, there's uh, I've heard some stories that didn't make me feel great to get in that plane. That's for sure. <laughs> So, so you so you get up there and, and I, I wanted to did you sustain any injury like do you have any kinks in your back from sleeping and just still do you, do you have any wounds from that trip that are still with you okay so i know but going in what my main concern was was rolling ankles because i've had just terrible ankles all my life like and you talked about a, that in the book yeah played a lot of basketball as a kid and just like I used to go out trail running in the desert and I would routinely roll an ankle, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, if I'm out there and I get like a bad one, that could be, that could be pretty bad. I mean, if we're like 12 miles out from camp and it's getting dark, I mean, the temperatures drop, you know, below zero, you're totally exposed. Weather can get gnarly. I mean, it could literally be a life-threatening situation to roll an ankle. So I had to do a ton of work to just get those things as stiff as possible and, you know, ready for action. And it, t- it took a while, but I got out there and nothing rolled. Thank God. And, uh, yeah, haven't had one since I was working with a dude named, uh, Doug Kachijan, who is out of, uh, New York city. He's got a place called resilient PT performance. He's a brilliant dude. Um, he was an SF guy. He was a air force, uh, pararescue guy. So he's got a, he's got a really wicked background. It was a fun work. I followed him. him after I heard about him in your book. Cause he's Armenian and I'm Armenian racist. Oh, right on. And, and I choose people. I, I fit in because I choose things and people by their race. That's the, what, the way to do it these <laughs> days. And, um, and he, he's quite the guy. He, uh, he's, he's a baller. I mean, he know he rolls with some cool cats oh, and he followed totally me back and he, yeah, he followed me back, which was kind of crazy. Yeah. Shout out, shout out to him. I mean, he was, um, he went to Columbia. I think I guess he talks funny, right? He He talks like my dad. He talks like an Armenian dude. Like he got an Armenian accent and shit. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's okay. I can say that. You can't say that, but I could say it. He talks funny. Like my, he sounds like my dad. He got his doctorate at Columbia. I think when he was in the air force and then moved out of the air force and now has this facility where he works with people. So yeah, he's, he's the man I, I really like. I mean, he's kind of like in the, in the model of a K star type where he's really molding sort of the mobility and the PT with the, um, traditional workout, you know? So he's, he's definitely the man. And he, he works in Hollywood. He does not. He does a lot of his stuff out of the East coast. He's got a facility. I think they have three facilities. It's like him and two other guys. It's him. Maybe Um, I'm confusing him with someone else. Maybe I'm confusing him with someone else. You might be, I don't know. Um, 
Yeah, he's got a facility in New York City, one in Connecticut, and one in New Jersey. Were there any other Armenian guys in your book? One's a lot. (laughs) 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 One one is a a lot. My next book, I'll make sure to include just as many Armenians as possible. I'm going to start selecting for Armenians. Thank you. It's the way to do it, dude. It's the way to do it these days. Choose everything. Call up universities. Be like, hey, look, uh, I need to talk to a psychologist, (laughs) but Armenians only. (laughs) Yes. Armenians only. Critical Armenian theory. Um, uh, There was another guy in your book that I wanted to, um, that I uh, got interested in, but then I found out he trains with the Azerbaijani um, wrestling team, I think. A big old buff white dude. uh, Kazi? Chazzy? Kashi. Yeah, Kashi. Yeah, I really wanted to like him, but he trains Azerbaijan in Armenia at war. So I had to to cross him off the list. No, I'm like a podcast slut. I just look for people. Yeah. He'd be, yeah, he'd be a good guy to talk to. That guy is, um, I mean, he's beyond brilliant, you know, because of my job, I talk to a lot of really smart people, um, you know, Nobel prize winners, all that kind of stuff, all kinds of crazy scientists. And that dude is like probably the most intellectually impressive person I've ever talked to. Um, and he's, he's like 29 years old and it just fucking frustrates the hell out of me, but he's a, he's a trip to talk to. He's a good dude. Um, can you understand him when he talks? You know, some smart people, they're just like, uh, like uh, uh, when I have a, uh, I don't know if you know, do you know who the carnivore MD is? Paul Saladino? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was on his podcast. He's a good dude. Okay. Yeah. But when I have him on, I got to like really slow him down. I can't let him just start using words like oscillates and like, I, yo, 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 dude, chill. Yeah. Get too far ahead of the pack. <laughs> just say like plastic. Yeah. Um, uh, exactly. Is, how about this guy, Cashy? Can he talk so that like you follow him or does he use like four words in a row and three concepts in a row that you don't know? And so you're like, shit, I'm lost. So we've become really good friends and I've learned how to understand him over time for sure. I mean, he's definitely understand. He's, he's good at bringing things down and okay. uh, he wants to kill me a lot of time because I, I'm always, give me an example. Give me an example yes. of that because it's or brain a metaphor. Yes. Yeah. Give me a metaphor. Give me an example. And so he's just, he's gotten pretty good at that over time. So yeah, I just uh, actually spent a couple of days at his house in Austin, February. So last month. And I mean, we just sit and talk for like hours and hours and hours. And his wife is like, thank God he has someone to talk to about his, you know, big ideas. Cause I'm sick of listening to him. <laughs> so yeah, it's a good time. Um, uh, Greg Glassman was like that. Mm-hmm. He would just just be sharing ideas. I hung out with him so much over 15 years and just hours yeah. and hours of sharing these ideas. And really, I wanted to hear them all, but I just couldn't. I, yeah. I, I would get like – I would get like, and I have tremendous focus, but I would just get burnout. I would just be like, <laughs> you know, yeah. just like I need a drink. Yeah, just I like, think the moment – I haven't talked to Greg a ton, but I've talked to him a, a handful <laughs> of times. And I think the moment that I realized that Greg is like an intellectual freak is – um, we were on the phone and he was like, you know, it's like, uh, it's like the number pi 3.14. And then he rattled off like 25 digits of pi. <laughs> yeah, and stop. I was just like, I was just like, in that moment, I'm just like, what is happening? Like this dude is on another <laughs> level. He's definitely like, he's definitely got a lot going on inside that head. And it's, he's a brilliant dude, man. Um, did you, you've dabbled with cross. Are you regular CrossFitter? Uh, no, but I've, I've like covered the sport. I mean, I've, you know, did a story on Dave, did a story on Greg. So I spent some time and, you know, familiar enough. So 
Um, and why don't you spend more time doing it? You don't like I've it? Done, I've done stuff off the website. Um, but basically, I've just always had access to either a gym when I was working at the magazine. They had a pretty swagged out gym. Um, or I had my garage. So I would do the programming. I just haven't gone to Oh, right. Yeah, that's like me box. too. Yeah, yeah, that's me too. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. me too. I, I do like... <laughs> CrossFit light, but I try to do it. Like, do you work out multiple times a day? I try to do it like three times a day. You do CrossFit light three times a day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. go, like go in the garage, ride the assault bike for 10 minutes while I watch a Michael oh, Easter okay. interview, yeah, yeah. then do 50 burpees as fast as I can done. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like just want that. Okay. I got 20, you know, yeah, stretch yeah. for five, 10 minutes. And then, and then later on in the afternoon, do another 20 minutes, something. And then at night at 10 o'clock at night, do another, but the whole time, like I said, multitasking got to have, yeah. Michael Easter book or something going. Yeah. Um, no, that's cool. Do you work out multiple times a day? Not multiple times. I'll usually do an hour a day. Usually at the end of the day, I was doing it in the morning and I found that it was kind of taking my, my writing time is in the morning. So I experimented. I was like, Oh, I'll work out from like eight to 9. AM. It's like, no, I still got some good energy for the writing left <laughs> by eight. And I found that it was impeding on that. So I'm usually working out like, you know, right before dinner, I'll, I'll get an hour, hour and a half in. Yeah. And then usually Sunday I'll do, I'm like right on the edge of the desert in Vegas, like amazing trail network, you know, red rock cacti. I mean, it's just unbelievably beautiful. So every Sunday I'll usually do a relative long ish run for me. So what's, yeah. what's the most common reptile you see? Um, a lot of lizards I've seen run into some snakes. You'll see a lot of jackrabbits out there. I'll take my dog oh. and he is a, he's a bird dog. So he'll just like hunt anything. And, uh, he just loses his mind out there. That's the best for him. Cause it's like this mental stimulation too, of trying to figure out like where the animals are chasing them down. So yeah, it's pretty rad. Jackrabbits. That's the bugs bunny one. They're the ones that sit upright. They can be really tall. Right. And they got the yeah. tall ears. Yeah, flat, they're like, just goofy are, animals. Yeah, they're cool though. I, I I think I've only seen one in the wild ever, and it was in Joshua Tree, and I was kind of blown away because it looks nothing like your bunny rabbit. No, they're huge, man. They're super yeah, they're huge. tall, and yeah. they're awkward. The way they kind of like lumber is just very strange. But they're they're super cool to see. You'll sometimes see bighorn sheep out there, which those are some badass animals. Because just their, you can age them based on how um, how their horns are. You know, their horns don't unlike um, unlike say deer and elk, there which have antlers that fall off every year. Um, sheep, their horns grow like throughout their life, so you can figure out if you can get a good look at them, you can figure out how old they are. You know, because there's a ring for every year, and they're also just the most wicked climbers ever. Like those things can just pop up the face of a mountain in like two seconds flat. So it's always fun to go out there because you see things like that. I go out there with my dog and you are immediately reminded that humans and on, on the grand scheme of things, we're, we're just pathetically athletic. Like we're just, we're just not good at athletic things. Right. One of the things you talk about in your book, which was fascinating to me is, um, it, and I'm paraphrasing, but you have these animals that can do these amazing things like, you know, monkeys and orangutans and gorillas. But then uh, one of the things you talk about that we can do that they can't do is carry weight on the side. Like, yes. like we can pick up a 75 pound dumbbell and carry it, you know, a hundred yards. And I was like, wow, I never even thought of that. 
Yeah, we're, so we're the only so we're good, we're basically good at two things as animals in the animal kingdom: um, running long distances slowly. So we're pretty wicked endurance athletes. That only really applies. We're only the best if it's hot outside. Okay, so we're really good at cooling ourselves. We sweat. We we can breathe in such a way that keeps ourselves cool. Um, when it gets cold out, then all of a sudden, um, sled dogs are by far the most elite endurance athletes on the planet. Like they're unbelievable animals. You think they run four minute miles for about a hundred miles a day for weeks at a time. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. And there's actually, um, I think DARPA, but they can't do that. They can't do that at 75 degrees. Nope. They could not do that in the heat because they're really inefficient at cooling themselves. So dogs, um, most four legged animals, pant as a way to expel heat that's really inefficient so when it gets hot the the reason why we evolved to sort of run slowly but surely in the first place is we would persistent hunt as we evolved okay so you think about an animal that can't cool itself but is a fast sprinter we would run up on it we would bump it it would sprint say quarter mile right but then it would start to get hot and it'd have to slow down well we'd slowly but surely hit it again bump it another quarter mile another quarter mile eventually that animal gets so hot over time that it would basically fall over from heat exhaustion and then we would just spear it and we would have ourselves some dinner but now this brings up the second thing that we're good at okay is that we're the only animal that can carry things for appreciable distances so once we killed that animal we would have to get it home we're the only animal that can pick stuff up and hoof the weight across ground, right? No other animal can do CrossFit, carry large loads. Carry loads. (laughs) And people will point out, like I'll I'll always have people go, well, horses and donkeys can carry stuff. goes, yes, but not on their own. We have to put the weight on them, right? So there's a difference there. Um, So this gave us a lot of different adaptations. It's like, it kind of explains why we have relatively shorter trunks. It explains why we have such uh, relatively strong grips compared to a lot of animals. Like we have a wicked strong middle finger. We have all these amazing adaptations that allow us to carry. And so as part of the book, you know, I talk about, tell me about this middle finger thing. Wait, what, how, why is our, tell me about some of the numbers around our middle finger. We can, um, our middle fingers are particularly strong. Um, most of our fingers are relatively strong, but it allows us to grip like a, you know, a dumbbell or something or, or, or anything and just hold it in our hands so we can carry it. And our, and our, um, wrists also sort of lock into our arms. So if you can see that, and that just yeah. increases the stabilization or that. that. So, so your middle finger is the big daddy. That's the strongest finger. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's cool. the mover right Okay. There, sorry, yeah. sorry. Sorry. Um, uh, what was I saying? Oh, so I, I think a lot them. of people are familiar with the idea that we can, you know, we kind of evolved to, to run longer distances because of that born to run book. If you ever read that. Amazing. Uh, amazing. Yeah. Book. Oh, it's wicked. Good. Wicked. Good. Um, but I also argue that, you know, we're actually more so born to carry because once we ran, we would have to b- carry the meat home and also gathering is essentially just walking around and then carrying food home. Right? right. And I think that shaped us uh, just as much. And in the book, like I talk about, a lot of people jog, right? We still do the running thing. So Not many. that many carry for a workout, right? And so right. I, this is why I go and I meet with um, the guys who found a go ruck and are really trying to promote rucking as a, you know, a, a fitness activity. As who this is that? Who's the go ruck guy? Um, so it was founded by a guy named Jason McCarthy. And he's really promoting it as a sort of type of fitness you can do because <clears throat> for one, it gives you cardio benefits. You get a lot of the same cardio benefits as running, but you're also working your strength system, 
right? So that's something that running doesn't give you. And you, I think you talk about that a lot in your book, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole uh, section that like goes way tested. deep into why we evolved to carry, um, the benefits of rucking, and then also just generally the benefits of physical fitness in terms of health. Like fit, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here, obviously, right, like, right? This is why Greg started CrossFit health, but like fitness is the best thing you can do to improve your health and resist chronic diseases. Like by far, or, or, or well, kind of right. Food as well. Yeah. Did we lose him? Yeah. I don't know. That's a first. Uh Oh, he's dropped off the computer. The computer is <laughs> the oh, no. update is complete. <laughs> there he is. Sure he'll be there, back he is. In. there he is. And something went wrong. 350 episodes. I've never seen that. Um, so, so I guess the nuance here is this activity is the best thing you could do, but the best thing you could stop doing was putting poison in your mouth. Totally. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because I've heard him stand up in front of crowds and be like, Hey, I'm the fitness guy. And I want to tell you, you can exercise away a bad diet. You cannot, you will get to the 95 line. If you stop eating, uh, added sugar and, and, uh, refined carbohydrates. Yeah, that's totally true. Right. So, so, okay. So sorry. Uh, You were talking about rucking and Jason McCarthy before I, I rudely, um, jumped out. (laughs) No worries. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just the book that, you know, we get into the, the history of caring, why we are so uniquely adapted to carry as a species, um, what it does for us. And then a lot of the benefits of, of fitness. And I get into nutrition in the book, um, as well. Some of those ideas from Trevor, the, the brilliant madman down in Texas. Um, all of these things we're talking about, um, Michael goes deep into in the comfort crisis, all of these ideas, all of this stuff. This book is so dense. It, literally, you could pick it up and turn to any chapter and just start reading too, and you won't even feel like you missed out. Like it's um, – and I, and I highly recommend the audio book. Re- that's you, right? Yeah, it was me. It was yeah, me. That great. was a fun experience. That, can ruin, that could ruin a book if someone, someone reads it and they're shitty. Was that um, hard to do it? Oh, way harder than I thought, man. Like way harder. I just, I was shocked. And it was, it's funny because my publisher set me up with this uh, recording studio here in Vegas. I get the address. I'm like, well, this is an interesting part of town, right? It's like (laughs) below the strip, like pretty sketchy. I pull up to this address and I'm like, it's just this brown brick building with like blacked out windows. One plate, like one half of it is this closed down Puerto Rican restaurant. The other is just like totally unmarked. There's just a number. That's like, all right, well, this is the number I walk up and I press the button, you know, like I hear some rustling inside after like a couple minutes, the door just cracks open. And it's this dude. Oh, geez. And he's, and he's like looking at me and he's like, you the writer. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I'm the writer. <laughs> he goes, I get the fuck in here. So I go in. He literally says like, it like that. Yeah. And I'm like, this is the sketchiest shit like ever. I get in and it opens to this room where there are platinum albums all over the wall. Like five Kenny Chesney platinum albums, the college dropout platinum album, like oh, a mob shit. deep platinum album, all these platinum albums. And I'm like, 
were all these, sorry, I was like, were all these recorded here? And he goes, yeah. I go, oh man, that's crazy. I didn't even know that this place was here. And he just looks at me and goes, that's the fucking point. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. But we ended well, up becoming well, good go- friends. What's going on that's here? Cool. What is this bullshit? What is what? this bullshit? <laughs> no, 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 no. You were gone for two seconds and they jumped no, ship. No, yeah, no. I, I imagine. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Zemo. Are, 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 sorry, Matt. Are you an asshole if you get a husky in the desert? It, going back to what you were saying before, these dogs are made to run in the snow 100 miles a day for a month straight. And are, are you, Like when I see these guys at the beach with their husky in Santa Cruz, uh, should I just be like, you're a piece of shit? Well, I mean, they definitely shouldn't be out in the summer. That's for sure. Like, I don't take my <laughs> dog out from like Ju- June to to August. You know, like Do you have a husky. Not- no, I have a German oh. short hair pointer, but like, oh yeah, yeah, that's a good, that's a that's a good uh, hot weather dog, right? Yeah, they're but yeah. but like running when it's over a hundred out, like no way, dogs can't do that. You know, they're just not, they're just they just can't, they're not physically adapted for it. It's like asking a human to try and you know, move a thousand pounds or something. It's like moving a polar bear into, into the Mojave. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, crazy. So, I never, you have a dog? I never thought of that. I, uh, do, oh yeah, I do have a dog. I have a, um, a boar bull. Do you know what that is? No, that sounds interesting. What is it? it it's a cool dog. Um, Greg had one and he recommended I get one. It's basically just a guard dog. It's a, um, South African mastiff and I oh, have this really? property here and I fenced in the whole property. And then I have a little, uh, rescue uh basenji chihuahua mix so they're nice. two like totally opposite dogs but this dog th- i highly recommend a borble for anyone okay. who wants an amazing guard dog i mean protects the kids like no other and this really? dog's scary as shit yeah what this does it look like? can you bring um, it up so i can see it and mine's really lean i keep mine really lean Oh, and dude, that's big. like the dog from the Sandlot. That's awesome. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and it's scary. Yes. And it's a, just oh, a barking yeah. machine, and it's got a beautiful bark. Nice. But I keep mine Very really cool. skinny. You can see all its ribs. It goes in. We don't got a fat. But it's still probably 120 pounds. Yeah, it's like that. Like oh, that. wow. Jack. Yes. Yeah, it's scary. Uh, and you Dave know what? I've had cool this dog, dog three years, and I've never walked this dog. <laughs> it really? just runs around the property. Yeah. My wife's naturally like, jacked. Yeah. Very cool. He's cool. Do- uh, Dave's dog is cool too. It's like a. That's a scary dog. Yeah. Um, it's an Argentinian something or other. I can't remember. Um, when I, when I went and hung out with him for that men's health story. D- Dogo. Um, a Dogo yeah. Argentino. Yeah. The, the, the guy he, he bought the dog was, was there as bought the dog from was there as well. So I heard like all about that breed. They seem pretty badass. I, t- I he I, when he got that dog, I'm like, you're fucking absolutely nuts. And now that dog has, to, I think he has to keep that dog separated from its the other three dogs they have. And it's a female. Yeah, he might. Yeah, he might. Sounds about right based on what I. Dave's very progressive. A lot of people probably don't know this. He's very progressive. He named his female Dogo Argentino Doug. Doug. <laughs> I like it. So good. Oh shit. Um, Michael, in your book, you mention. By the way, if you ever have to pee during this podcast, you can get up and pee. <laughs> Dude, I, very, did pre, I did a pre-pee. I'm good. To I go. know. Okay, but I just want. I, I I pride myself on the fact that we allow our guests to do like whatever they want. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Um, 
You mentioned this group of people in Japan. It's just a quick side note you mentioned. Mm -hmm. It's just like going through, and you just, there's a group of 500,000 people in Japan. How many people live in Japan, Sousa? I guess that's important. Um, 500,000 people who have quarantined themselves in their apartments, not not related to COVID at all, but, or, or sequestered, maybe is a better word. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? What, what the fuck is going on there? Yeah, they're called the, they have a name for them. And I think it's Hikikimori, something like that. And they're these people, they tend to be young. So it's people. like half a percent, half a percent of the population, a little less than half a percent. Yeah. And they've, um, they've essentially just, yeah, sequestered themselves inside their homes, but for like unbelievable amounts of time, like years and years and years, these people will not leave their rooms because they're so afraid of the world. And I think I, I, you know, in the book, I argue that's um, an, a very extreme symptom of modernity, especially living in cities. It seems that people are not as well adapted to live in cities as we are in, you know, in the country and rural areas. So if you look at a lot of the research, um, the more the population, the higher the population density is, um, the less happy as a population people tend to be. So you look at you know, they, they, there was this really fascinating um, study on 328 cities and which was most happy, which was least happy. And at the very bottom of the list was New York City because it's the most population dense. So this is called the Savannah Theory of Happiness. It was created by a guy at the uh, London School of Economics. And yeah, basically says that, you know, the, the more population dense the place you are, probably the less happy you're going to be. We're just we just don't do as well in cities. I don't know if you've. Um, like I lived in New York City for a little while. That place drove me nuts. I mean, there's a small population of people that do seem to do well in cities, but it's they're they're rare. They're the uh, exception rather than the rule. I used to go there a lot. I would go there. I've probably been there, I don't know, 50 times for a week at a time. And of course, when I visited it, I, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was the yeah. fucking coolest place ever. I, I really do need to be alone a lot, though. Like being alone is very, 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 very important to me. I, I, one of the things that fascinated me about your book is the the use of the word lonely and the use of the word boredom. And the first time you used the word boredom, I was like, oh, he, he better define this. And then later I saw you give two fabulous definitions uh, for it. And we talked about one of them in this book um, or in this uh, podcast already. That, um, And you'll say it better than I can re repeat it. But basically – um, and it is not the way it's used in modern times, which is fascinating, but it was when a human being realizes that the cost th – that he's not benefiting from what he's doing right now and he should shift activities. He's not benefiting on the, on the level of survival being the goal, that whatever yeah. – however you're spending your time is not the wisest for survival, and so you should switch to another activity. And when I heard first heard you define boredom like that, I was like, fuck, this dude's a beast. Thank you, Michael. Like I just <laughs> – I need definitions for words like that. I don't let my kids use words like that, boredom, disgusting, um, uh, just words that don't mean shit to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like yeah. I'd rather there's, they say fuck another... and bitch than than disgusting and boredom. Like <laughs> like we know those words. I mean, it's just crazy to call a bug disgusting. What a waste. There's another one I heard, and it, uh, I forget who it was from. I I name it in the book. Um, some philosopher, you know, famous philosopher, where everyone goes, "Oh, that person is important, and smart." Um, but he called it a desire for desires, which I thought. Yes, was yes, you wrote that in the book. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, yes. Tell us about that. That part's dope. That's yeah, the just in the, in the boredom, just trying to get down to like, what is boredom? And this guy defined it as a desire for desires. And that sort of like stuck with me. Because when you're bored, it's like, 
you want to do something, but you don't know what that something is. And that's how my kids use it. Yes. A desire for desire. Yeah. And the sort of like discomfort sets in that's that goes back to the return on time thing is why boredom is uncomfortable. Right. Because it's like this compelled us in the past to go do something that would increase our odds of survival. If we didn't have boredom kick on, we would sit on that hill hunting for 72 hours until we, until we starved to death. Right. You're sitting at home. Your mom tells you to go to your room. You're looking out your window and you're bored as shit. Then the neighbor's daughter comes out and starts mowing the lawn. You're not bored anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You, so, yeah, you're, yeah. There's a fly in the window, and you and you think maybe I should kill the fly, but then all of a sudden you get creative, and you're like, no, I'll catch it with chopsticks. Exactly. Exactly. Do something. You make a little, so, make a little yeah, space. I talk about how you know boredom is neither good nor bad. It's really what you do with it, right? Mm-hmm. Where does it take you that makes it good or bad? But I argue that because so much of our boredom is now taken by our cell phones, by all these other screens, that we're essentially just leaning into the most easy thing. So the the researcher I talked to on this, he called it, you know, the way that we deal with boredom now is essentially junk food for the mind. So my argument is that, you know, you hear a lot on like, quit using your cell phone, quit using your cell phone, quit using your cell phone. And it's like, yeah, we, you know, we, we do need to do that. We need to use it less. We need to... Um, do all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, when people say take like two hours off their phone screen time, they go, Oh my God, I'm bored. And I hate this. Uh, I guess I'm just going to go watch Netflix. It's like your brain doesn't know the damn difference between those two at all. Right. So the real, the real uh, message I'm trying to say is don't think less phone, think more boredom because that'll take you into far more interesting places. You know, when you feel that compulsion, that discomfort and your, your next instinct is to pull out your phone, find something else. See where that takes you. So one thing I do every day is that I'll go for a 20-minute walk outside and I won't take anything. You know, and I also don't really run with with much in the desert because when you have this like when you're processing information from the outside world, like you would be on your phone or whatever it might be, um, your brain's actually working pretty hard and you're, you know, you're focused on that. Whereas if you uh, remove yourself from that, your mind tends to wander inward. And that's where good ideas come from right? It's like, you got to kind of chew on things in the background and then that answer or whatever it is will kind of appear. I, um, I watched the, that series, uh, Yellowstone mm-hmm. on Netflix. I, I watched that and, um, Game of Thrones. I think those are the only two. Oh, and Ozarks. Those are my three in the last probably like 10 years that I've watched. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but when I started watching Yellowstone, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's over now, but, um, I, I invited every single person in the cast to come on my podcast. Did you? Like if I'm a right watch, yeah. If I'm a watch that shit, then like, like, and, and I feel like you would probably do the same. Like if you're going to watch some show, you'd be watching it and you'd be like, Hmm, I wonder how Kevin Costner stayed in shape and what he ate on the set. And, and I wonder what nutrition is yeah. like on the set. And I went, Hmm, I'm going to contact the director and I'm gonna, like, there can't be, there, there can't be like these, I can't compartmentalize my life. There can't be these avenues where I'm just sitting at the beach. I mean, I can just sit at the beach in Hawaii and relax, but it better be to get bored. So then I start like, while I'm there, I'm like recharging the, 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 my connection with the, with the higher powers so that I can um, do more podcasts again. Like there there has to be a, there has to be a synergy with the life that Gandhi said that you can't separate church and religion and state. And the reason why you can't is because your life is your religion. 
how I mm. speak to Michael Easter is my representation of, of God, how I, how I, um, to treat my kids, how I drive my car. Yeah. That's yesterday, really yesterday, someone, someone flipped me off. He was walking, <laughs> he was walking through an intersection and I drove through it and I was in a hurry and, and he flipped me off. I'm like, I, I, yeah. I and I think it. there's sort of, it. it's like kind of an indictment <laughs> of, uh, of hustle culture that we live in too. Right. It's like, you know, all these hacks to do like the next, the next thing. But I think that people really do need these sort of like slower periods yes. to process things in the background. Yes. You can't always be, I mean, it's like driving your car at 90 miles an hour all the time. It's eventually you're going to run mm. out of gas. You're going to run out of oil. You're going to have to get that shit changed. And unfortunately you can't hack that, you know? So I do think we need more, um, more of these kind of slower periods that we seem to not have anymore. I think COVID probably ramped that up because people are just sitting around like just shoving, you know, media into their minds and foods down their throat. And I don't know, it's a strange period. And, and, and you don't have to go to the Arctic. You can just not turn on your Netflix. Yeah. Go out, just go outside. Like one of the things I look at in the book is all the crazy benefits of nature. It's like humans evolved in nature. We're adapted to it. It's like, it does a lot of good things for us psychologically. And there's all this really fascinating research that basically suggests there's these sort of different doses of nature that we seem to do well with. So like 20 minutes outside in just a city park seems to reduce our stress, seems to make us a little bit more productive when we get back. But we also know we need wilder types of nature for longer periods. So there's five hours in a sort of more like a state park. It's a little bit wilder, but it's not Central Park. Um, But, you know, it's not so far removed from the city. That seems to increase levels of happiness and decrease depression. And then at the very top, there's this really fascinating concept called uh, the three-day effect. And it basically says that after three days in really wild backcountry nature, some fascinating stuff happens to the human brain. We start to ride what are called alpha waves. Now, these are these sort of slow, chill waves that are also found in experienced meditators. And they're associated with just like feelings of calm, feelings of well-being, more self-awareness. Like all these amazing things start to happen. Things slow down. We start to think differently. And we don't get those alpha waves uh, in modern living because we're always just so go, go, go. We ride what are called beta waves. So there's a strong argument um, to spend at least three days like deep in the wild every year, if possible. And, you know, I'll talk to people and they're like, I can't, I'm not getting in a tent, dude. Like, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So my my answer to them is, you know, rent a cabin. Um, but like, like don't turn on the TV when you're there. Don't use your cell phone. Right. Because a lot of the research shows that the minute you start using your cell phone, uh, all those benefits get erased because it sort of takes your attention, um, into this zone that is more like home and you're not focused on all this stuff happening around you. A couple of years ago, I went to Hawaii for a travel wedding and it was four days long. And on the third day there, I was like, oh, shit. My wife's like, what? I'm like, I just relaxed, and we have to leave tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, takes a while. It's like people, your your brain is still sort of left at home. You know, I, I know like, I'm relaxed when I start thinking about moving to the place I'm at. Like I was like, yeah. like I was there for three days, and I'm like, all right, fuck it. I'm just selling everything I have and just stay here in a pair of shorts. <laughs> and, <rest> <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> Yeah. Are you, are you working on, sorry. I said, yeah, I get that way too. Were you going to ask me if I'm working on Uh, something else? Yeah. And and you don't even, to finish that, you don't even know that you're, you're not relaxed, like until you are relaxed. 
it definitely do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, of yeah. course I'm relaxed. I'm in Hawaii. And then all of a sudden I woke up, I'm like, oh shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like when I was um, in you- the Arctic, it was, it was, um, you would think I'd be totally stressed out the whole time because there's grizzly bears everywhere. We're out there for a month. There's insane weather. Some days it was negative 20 and my boots were literally frozen in ice because we had to do river crossings. All this shit. Yeah, putting on the cold boots story was crazy. Uh, dude, so crazy. And so you would think that I would be like totally on edge, totally stressed out. And like, of course, there were spikes in stress, but overall, my stress levels were the lowest they've been. Mm-hmm. in my life by far mm. like more present more focused more aware i just felt like oh this must be how like the buddhist monks feel after they get back from the meditation retreat for like a month right i mean it's totally that and um i i do think you need those longer periods to to really get into that it takes a while for me it was probably like by the f- fourth day i started kind of feeling that way and it just sort of intensified over time do you know who dorian is dorian uh, he, he's also went by Fitness Lonnie. I don't think so. No, maybe, his, but it's not coming. His, it's not ringing any bells. He he, he was a, he was a CrossFitter um, from the early days when it was like smaller and everyone knew everyone. Probably just like five thousand gyms or something. And he went away to become a monastic monk. Oh, really? Yeah, and he spent so much time in isolation now. And the other day, he came to my house. And he hung out, and it was fucking nuts. You would love to talk to him, Michael. What he set he my whole say? house. He set my ho- whole house sky high. You could talk about anything with him. It's like speaking to like the world's largest brain. It's like just this open. Like there's like he walks in the room, and there's just freedom. Wow, that's interesting. You know? And and one of the things he does, and and these are the kind of practices that are insane. He's not allowed to eat unless you give him food. And he's oh, only yeah. allowed to receive food between 6 a.m. and noon. So this motherfucker well, got to wake up every day, <laughs> no matter where he is in the world, and go out with this fucking bowl. He can't ask for food. So he told me he told me about a trip he did to Alabama, walking around Montgomery. And he said, so what you're doing is, is your interest, you know, this, have you ever heard the phrase, people who don't speak to angel, people who don't speak to strangers, don't speak to angels. Mm -mm. Basically, I mean, just think about the, 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 the powers of the universe that he sees every single day, the conspiring of the universe to help him survive. It's the exact kind of opposite. It's the opposite and same of what you did in the Arctic. The, the yeah, Arctic, that's fascinating. Like, it, yeah, it's crazy. And he's a, and he's a, it's oh man. He's Especially so because of the cultural, I mean like so I know that you know that that's practiced in Thailand. And so that but that's a cultural thing. It's like yes, that's what yes. you do like from 6 to noon, yeah, I got to go out and I got to feed the monks, right? Like, yeah, not not, not in Montgomery. They don't know that. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> yeah. In Montgomery they're like what the hell is this dude with the bowl? Like what's going on with this? Right? Like there's no context for them to feed this dude. Like he's probably out there. He's probably starving at some point. Glad and, he survived these, it. And, and these yeah. beautiful people from the, with their crazy thick Southern accents will just, he would tell me stories. They would walk up to him and have questions for him and talk to him and feed him. And it was wow. just like, yeah, it, it, it just gave you so much faith and hope and humanity. And just like, he's like, oh yeah, the South is great. Like, that's just, awesome, man. I love yeah. that. So yeah. cool. 
My sister married into a family from the South, and I'm a California Berkeley boy, so we have a lot of strong judgments about those fucking redneck, hick, Republican, racist fucks. And guess what? (laughs) Everything I thought about them was 100% wrong. Every fucking thing I thought about them was 100% wrong. The nicest guys, they stand up when women come to the table. The clubs there weren't segregated like our fucking clubs in fucking California. You walk in, it's black, white, and everyone makes and dancing together. It was crazy. Yeah, man. I believe it. I feel like we... uh... Education in California. (laughs) Yeah, preconceptions are only good because they teach us that we're wrong most of the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Are you, is it tough being a journalist? Um, there's this, I, I, I'm going to be completely transparent with you. Honest. I struggle with men's health and outside magazine and the New York times and, 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 and these publications that are super popular because I, I, I see stuff in them. That's, that's, um, ambiguously malicious. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, totally. So, and, and so, so like for example, the New York Times during the Harvey Weinstein era, when we're getting in Matt Lauer era, when we're getting all these examples of men doing absolutely fucking idiotic things to women w- w- in excruciating detail, then they can just point the finger at someone else and be like, "Yeah, um, he got me too, too," but not tell us why. And so then we fill in the blanks. Right, right. And no, people think- just getting their lives destroyed. And I see these. Is it hard? I mean, I, it's just fucked up journalism. Yeah, totally. I think the incentives are off. I think, you know, being someone who worked at a magazine for a lot of years, um, you know, still writes for a lot of publications and kind of had, you know, was in the media world. I think that the incentives are all off for media right now. So I think that, you know, you find a lot of journalists are on Twitter and they follow a lot of other journalists who are on Twitter and they all kind of live in a sort of Twitter bubble where they are writing stories and saying things to get likes on Twitter. And those things need to fit a certain narrative, right? You can say certain things, can't say other things because that's what you do. And so I think that there is a disconnection from the sort of normal, I don't know if normal is right, but from a world that isn't that media world, right? Because most journalists live in New York City. They all lean a certain political way. They live a certain kind of life. They have certain conversations with other people who are, who are like them. And so I think it creates a sort of worldview that, that doesn't necessarily align with that of the average person. So that's one of the reasons that I now live in Las Vegas. It's one of the reasons I don't do that. I'm selective with the stories that I will and will not do for the publications I write for. You know, um, also you think about what are, what works online. And this isn't, this isn't new as far back as 1800. Um, so we basically got clickbait as we know it now from a newspaper in the 1800s. There's this guy, Benjamin day. Okay. And so at the time newspapers were six cents a piece. Now this was very expensive. So only businessmen could afford them and rich people. And he goes, okay, I want to make a newspaper that costs a cent but I'm not going to be able to cover my costs. So how the hell am I going to cover my costs? Oh, I'm going to do this thing called advertising. I'm going to approach companies. I'm going to say, look, you can put your logo on my thing. You can sell your shit in my paper. What year was this? This was the 1800s, probably like 1880 something. So he goes, okay, great. Great. I got this down. We're good to go. Well, shit. Now I need to get a lot of people to buy this 
because I can charge more per ad the more people I have reading it. If you have two readers and you go to an advertiser and be like, yeah, pay me $100. Like, well, my product's only 25 Like, how many am I going to sell, right? The more readers you can get, the more you can charge for ads, the more money you can make. Okay, so how do you get readers is the next question. Well, the way he did it is he basically came up with the clickbait of the time. He realized that like, oh, I'm going to start covering murders. I'm going to start covering like rapes. I'm going to start covering crazy political shit. I'm just going to cover the crazy shit because that's what people will buy. And it took off. Literally within a year, he had the most popular uh, newspaper in the entire world. And that model, that advertising model, which is effectively give people content for either free or exceedingly cheap, which media is very cheap, even if you're paying for it, right? Uh, But then make up all your costs with advertising and make up a lot more. That's how we still work. But the thing is, is the more money, the more eyes you can get, the more money you can make with that advertising. The way you get eyes is by feeding people stuff that preys on um, fears, preys on insecurities, makes people feel outrage, makes people feel something, right? That's how it works. Oh, going back to Israel Adesanya, he wants to make people feel something. Yeah, <laughs> totally. It's like, look what look what people click on now. It's like negative news stories get um, get clicked on. I think is 80% of internet traffic, whereas positive ones are 20 breaking my heart. That's a great story. You just told that is, and that was the, was the term clickbait actually contrived. Like that was made back then too. Did they call it that in 1880? It's it's essentially what you can think of as clickbait today. Yeah. Clickbait, um, came from really kind of started with a viral email from the guy who would end up starting, I think the Huffington post. He realized that there was, he was a guy at MIT media lab and he had, um, that wasn't a chick this, who started Huffington Post, that foreign chick? It was Ariana Huffington and this guy, whose name is oh, okay. Jonah Peretti, I think. And just figuring out- And oh, Huffington was like, married to the to the gay governor, right, Pete? I don't remember her back. Yeah, I don't know much of her backstory just beyond the Huffington Post. What? What? Didn't we have a governor that Ariana Huffington was married to, and then he came out as gay, and they got a divorce? Pete, a, a Republican dude, Pete? Shit, sorry. I can't remember. That was a cool story. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is what this is one of the reasons why I don't pay a ton of a ton of uh mind to national media. Because like you're always they're always going to run the worst thing happening at any given moment and I think it can skew our perception of whether or not the world is actually improving as a whole. So think about like one of the things I talk about in my book is like, think about the last hundred years, thousand years, hundred thousand years. The world is clearly unbelievably better than back then. You're less likely to starve. You're more likely to be literate. You're less likely to be in bondage. You're less likely to die at any given moment. I mean, on and on and on, right? You live in temperature control, all these things. But if you poll the average American, only 6% of people think that the world is improving. That is a serious miscalculation. Well, why is that? Yeah. It's because of quirks in our human brain that basically tell us to look for problems. This is a concept I talk about in the book. And also we sit around watching news all day that is incentivized to feed us all this negative shit. It's like, of course you think the world is terrible. And I'm not saying the world doesn't have problems. Like we should all be aware of the fact that like Russia is invading Ukraine, but there's been so much other stuff where it's just like, is this really going to impact my life? And yet I'm reacting to it like this is an existential risk. Like it's just, it's not a healthy news system we live in right now. 
And then there's people like me who are reacting to the people who are reacting. Yeah. <laughs> thinking, I'm better, thinking I'm better than them. Doing the exact yeah. same shit they're doing. Yeah, man. <laughs> what, when you say you moved to Las Vegas, um, where did you live before and why Las Vegas? What were the implications of that statement you made? It, it somehow oh. insulates you or? No, just outside of the East Coast media bubble. Um, so I'd lived in New York and then I was living in Pennsylvania, which, um, that was interesting because I was working for uh, men's health magazine and, you know, arguably the reason that that magazine did so well and at its peak, it had a higher readership than all our competitors combined GQ Esquire men's journal, roll them all up. We still outdid them. I think one of the main reasons for that is another we, horrible publication, GQ, some fucking oh, shit. I, I, shit that makes me hope that there's a hell, but sorry, go on <laughs> the uh, ad people. I think one of the reasons for that is because we were based out of Pennsylvania rather than Manhattan. So our editors tended to live more quote unquote, normal American lives. Right? Gotcha. Like we are living lives more like our readers. And so we were able to tackle issues and translate things in a way that um, was more relatable for people. And, you know, it, it's been, it's been interesting because I think the, the magazine has um, it's changed over the years, but it's, it's still a solid print product, but the website, like publications are treating their websites totally different. Like I cannot read that website anymore. I just can't even go on it. It's just, it's just terrible because the incentives online are just, all off, you know? And, and you say that on here, aren't you afraid that you will be, something will happen to you? There'll be some blowback. Like Michael, you can't say that. Like, like when I worked at CrossFit, like I wouldn't dare like do say the shit I'm saying about CrossFit now. Well, I mean, look, <laughs> like <laughs> these are conversations I have with people who work there. <laughs> you know, right. Like, right. This right. is like, I, I don't look, I, I don't think that I, I don't read the website anymore. Yeah. I don't know if it was meant to have a story in on the, in the magazine, like a well-reported story. Like, all right, well, it is what it is. But I just, I do think that I just think it is kind of too bad. What has happened to not to a lot of media, especially around how they run their websites. You know, that's just that's how I feel. I'm not going to, I'm going to stand there and, you know, take your shot. If it hits me in the head and I don't get it right for men's health anymore. So be it. Um, we started going down the Avenue of, if you're working on another book, Oh yeah, I am. I am. Yep. So I've been sort of traveling the globe, meeting with people and, uh, it is about how humans evolved in environments of scarcity of all different things, Ooh. of food, of information, of stuff, of the number of people we could influence. And now we live in an abundance of all those things. And so what is that doing to us? Are you going to have the same outline for this book? Or are you going to put yourself in a situation where there's scarcity and talk about your 30 days of there won't be an overarching narrative in this book. <laughs> no. I want to see you put yourself somewhere in scarcity. Like, can you walk across India or something? Do you still have the, the car that you lived out of? I'll, I'll live in it for a month or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> hey, dude, homelessness is a trip. It was, it, was, it was the best years of my – It was those were the two best years of my life. That's really I, fascinating. I, Why do you think that is? Um, Because I – 
Well, one the the, the scare the, the sad part is is that ninety nine percent of my peers were drug addicts. So my colleagues in the homeless life, it's it's a really sad place. Yeah. Um, but I chose that because I wanted to experience the ascetic lifestyle. I wanted to experience the lifestyle of a of a Siddhartha or a or a Buddha or a Jesus. I wanted to see what would happen if I gave everything up. If I didn't, mm-hmm. what, what, and you learn some fascinating things that basically anyone will be your friend if you don't tax them. No one wants to be taxed. Mm-hmm. Hey, Michael, can I have one of those cigarettes? Hey, Michael, can you give me a ride here? Like all of those things, you're spending your equity. So you never, you, you just want to create space and let the universe, cons- you want to let the universe bring you stuff. Like that thing we talked about, Fitness Lonnie does. Uh, his name is now Tissero. Um, you, you, you. I, th- I think it was in Little Buddha with Keanu Reeves. There's a point in the movie where he sits under a tree and the tree actually grows over him to give him shelter. Mm-hmm. And so that when you start witnessing that miracle, there's a excitement and an energy you get from the universe that's um, indescribable. Holy fuck. This fucking thing is conspiring to fucking make my shit happen. Like you, yeah. maybe it's just you see karma. Mm, that's interesting. In, in real so in, in seeing- real time. Who knows? it's like it's it's empathy and there's like a lack of questioning among people or like what is it that just like the guards are down because you're no longer trying to get something out of people or you make space for them to give i'll I'll tell you i'll tell you a a really superficial version of the story a friend of mine i used to travel all over the world with his name's howard schiffer he's the founder of vitamin angels it was like the largest distributor of vitamins free anywhere in the world and i traveled all over the fucking world with him and he told me a story one time about this lady he used to travel with and every time they pulled up to the airport he would want to get out of the car and get her luggage out of the back but before he could do that she would always say hey can you get my luggage from the back and it fucking really pissed him off because he wanted to do it Mm. But she stole that from him by saying, will you get my luggage? And so there's this thing we can do where we make space for people to be good. We make this space for the universe to, to, uh, to, um, to, to, to change their mind. There's nothing better. This is another superficial version, but there's nothing better than um, someone like, like I, uh, you cut someone off, they flip you off and you say, sorry. And then they pull their finger down and they go, you know what I mean? Yeah. You just totally. did it right yeah. there. You fucking went to war and fucking had it signed a treaty of Versailles right there. Boom. Done <laughs> in a second. Yeah. And like, exactly. um, it's it's like that, but it's like a slower version of that where you see – like the very first day I was homeless, when I was homeless, I remember being in the middle of this park, and I remember going, oh, fuck, I need to get – and I had a Great Dane. It was just me and this Great Dane. I'm like, I got to get – how am I going to feed this dude tonight? And right then, this this homeless dude comes walking up to me with a black garbage bag, and it was a dude I kicked out of my fucking yard at least a dozen times over the past year, right? Like, hey, mm-hmm. dude, what the fuck are you doing in my yard? Get the fuck out. And he walks up to me when I had a house and he walks up to me and now the first day I'm home and he opens up this black garbage bag and he says, Hey, um, do you want one of these chickens? And it's fucking like 30 rotisserie chickens that he got like day old rotisserie chickens. He got out of a dumpster somewhere. And I'm like, fuck yeah. And I took one <laughs> and he's like, later brother. And he takes off and me and my dog sat there and ate that thing. <laughs> you know what wow. I mean? And I'm like, I'm like, Oh shit, this shit's going to work out. I'm going to do <laughs> So d- did you become, homeless by choice or like what happened yes. there? Uh, yeah. Okay. Kind of by choice. Kind of by choice. Yeah. Kind, I mean, as an undergrad at UC Santa Barbara for seven years and my mom was finally like, yo, dipshit, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, like <laughs> You're fucking hole smoking weed and like, and like playing video games all day. And like, 
but but I but what was in, I, I quickly just turned into a dirt twirling hippie. I wasn't a hippie at the time, and then there was the, I realized there's also two different kinds of hippies. There's the hippies like me who just didn't have shoes, and we had to get our clothes out of the free box. And then there were the rich kids who were cutting holes in their pants and sewing the patches in, and they had the cool glass bongs and shit. It was crazy. Yeah. It was it was the trust cool. the trustafarians as we call them. Yes. <laughs> um, there, there's, there's, there's a point in one of your interviews where you say, well, well, let, I want to go back to this journalist thing. So do you, are you evolving? Um, what is, how different is Michael Easter who started writing this book? What year did you start writing this book? And the Michael Easter that I'm speaking with Matt, Susan, and I are speaking with right now. How different are you guys? Uh, yeah. I started writing the book in maybe like 20, 18, 2017. I mean, definitely very okay. different. I, I definitely have a different perspective on life. Um, a lot of it, I think, comes down to gratitude and being like, mm. holy shit, like the, the world that we live in now is unbelievable. Like when, you know, going to Alaska, it's like I had to fabricate this thing that basically showed me this, right? And it's like a, an example that I use a lot of times is that you know, to get up to Alaska, I got to take like seven planes, right? So the first plane flight is from Vegas to Seattle. Now I've, I hate flying. I fucking hate flying. Cause it's the worst thing too. that could ever happen to a human. You're packed right. into this little thing. The chair is uncomfortable. It's always too hot. The coffee sucks. If you want to get up to go to the bathroom, you're cramped. The movies are always shit on the screen in front of you. It's just God awful. Right. It's but B then level go, everything. It's oh, B level everything. Yeah. <laughs> But then I go out into the, to the and the Arctic, people are right? assholes, and the pe- the nicest people yes. in the world turn into assholes on a plane. You're like, what's going on in here? <laughs> yes, hundred percent. Then I'm out in the Arctic, and it's like, there's no way to get warm. I'm freezing the entire time. If I want water or a drink, I gotta hike down to a stream. I gotta fetch water out of it, and I gotta hike it all the way back home. If I want to go to the bathroom, I gotta hike out on the tundra. I gotta bring the rifle because there's grizzlies, and I gotta squat. I gotta carry things everywhere I go. I'm hungry the entire damn time. I'm bored out of my mind because there's not a screen within 200 miles, and I don't bring a book or any of this, right? So what happens when I get back on that flight that goes from Seattle to Vegas home, right? My experience is 100% different. I'm like, holy shit, this is the most unbelievable thing that has ever happened to me. I hadn't (laughs) sat in a chair. So cozy. So cozy. It's warm. Dude, I like, I asked for like, you know. There's girls on the plane, even if they're 100 pounds overweight. Dude, and when I, you know, when I go to the bathroom, it's like, oh, great. I don't have to take the rifle to the bathroom for once. (laughs) And then it's like, you know, I, I hit this little thing to wash my hands in the bathroom and like hot running water hits my hands at 30,000 fucking feet in the air. It's like, how the fuck could anyone ever complain about like flight today? And like, you know, part of what I talk about in the book is that like even people who are in relative poverty, the importance there is relative, right? Right, 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 right. People are still living like Kings in the grand time of grand scheme of time and space. And I'm not saying people don't have problems at all. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying that the problems that we have now, we are in a better position to face them than we ever have before. And I think generally we take for granted just how amazing things are right now. And for me, like, unfortunately I couldn't just get that. I had to go do this thing that sort of taught me it. And I think that that's what you know, so part of the message I'm trying to convey is that like when you put yourself in p- positions of discomfort, 
in different ways. It'll help you start to appreciate all of life and just make life more meaningful. I mean, for me, it's like, I, I, I'm definitely more aware and I savor a lot more of the moments that I have, you know, I think that's definitely done the change. Do, do you know, um, Soel, Thomas Soel, the, the 95 year old black dude, who's a Hoover Institute guy, economist, you know who that is? No. You, I, I think you would like his stuff because he, what he does is he arms, and, and I'm going to make a leap here. He arms to the teeth people like me and you who probably come from a similar ideology and upbringing with c- kind of like Jordan Peterson um, with, with facts and numbers that can really fuck people up. Mm. Um, and I'm sorry if I made some, I, well, I, I made some presuppositions about you just now and I'm sorry if they're, if they're wrong, but like one of the, I'll give you, um, <clears throat> I'll give you an example. Um, so a newspaper may present to us that the, um, the discrepancy in wealth between the races is massive and, and the ethnicities is massive and that the average Puerto Rican in the United States makes 25,000 a year and the average Jew makes a hundred thousand a year and they, and they leave it at that. And then at the bottom, you can sign up for the diversity, equity, inclusivity club. So you can fix this world disaster, of Puerto Ricans and Jews having discrepancy in wealth. And then Thomas Sowell says, but you may want to notice that the average Puerto Rican is 25 years old in the United States and the average Jew in the United States is 50 years old. So now mm. he's giving you a stat that transcends the superficial stat of ethnicity and racism, gives you a mathematical number based on the day that you came out of your vagina versus how many days on the calendar and how many times the earth has gone around the fucking sun to actually think clearly about this fucking thing. Because at 25, I was fucking homeless as an Armenian man. And now at 50, I'm sitting here talking to Michael Easter, a millionaire. And it's like, so, like, like, you can't, you can't fucking compare me to the twenty-five-year-old Armenian Sevan. Yeah, totally. Well, and I think so that that's kind goes, of the rule of media is just context gets removed, right? It's it's yeah. a lot sexier. Oh, just to you run just broke and, my heart. And, that's and the rule. Deep. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that happens, and and I think that it, you know, sometimes that context might be in the piece, but it's definitely not the lead of the piece. The headline is, here's some. Here's something that is seemingly outrageous. So you'll be like, well, what the fuck is up with that? And then you'll click, right? And you may not mm-hmm. learn that critical context until a handful of paragraphs down. But I think the damage has already been done. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Are, are we just are we just getting at it now, Michael? We're just gonna get what at it. What do you it. mean? <laughs> what do you think about um trump's vi- the nelk brothers interviewing trump did you ever get to see that before it got pulled down last week no i didn't see that do you know what i'm referencing i i don't know remember i don't watch that much national news <laughs> so so there's these guys there when i was a kid there was this group called jackass i don't know if if, if i'm 49 i don't know were they around when you were a kid oh, johnny knoxville yeah those guys oh yeah 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 okay and so then there's a new group of these guys, and they're called the Nelk Brothers. And I only know about them, and they're cool. They seem like really nice dudes. And I know about them because they're friends with Dana White, and I watch the UFC. But of course, mm-hmm. everyone knows I watch the UFC because I bring those guys onto the show. Yeah, remember what we talked about? Don't scroll for pussy. And um, so the Nelk Brothers interviewed last month or a couple weeks ago. They interviewed Donald Trump. It's an awesome interview. It, though, yeah, there's the cats, and it's like um, uh, it was like an hour. It's totally chill. They were asking him just like questions like, hey, dude, if you're friends with Putin, why don't you just call him and just tell him to chill? I mean, just just real talk. You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. Donald Trump tells them, hey, YouTube's going to pull this down. And um, and uh, they're like, no, they're not. And within fucking t- – I, I, got, I got to see it because I ride the assault bike and watch YouTube every six yeah. hours, 24 hours a day. But um, <laughs> I got to see the video. But within 24 hours, that shit was pulled down. Yeah. That, that, it's an interview with the ex-president is... of the United States. I'm just tr- – he didn't say anything. He wasn't like – nuke israel or do you know what i mean he, i mean even yeah. if he did but do you have any thoughts on this um yeah i mean if that if that got pulled down that's i i don't think that we should be leaving it up to you know some people in silicon valley to decide what we can and can't watch if someone wants to put that out to the world i think that's pretty um I think that's not only dangerous, but also it's like, it's super arrogant to think that like, I I should have any idea what another person should, should see. Like, I I think that there is a general, um, kind of arrogance that can come out of the tech sector. And you see it not only in like how we are going to censor ideas, but also even in things like, you know, the, this whole idea that, uh, of, investing billions of dollars so that humans can live forever. You know, it's like, that's not going to like, it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of like where we are with science. And I think that, I think that it would do us a lot better to realize like, you know, I don't know what I, what I don't know, but I should like, you know, consume things and see how that makes me feel and form opinions, but also understand that like, I'm probably not going to think the same way in a week, much less three years. Like right. people mm-hmm. need to be better at realizing that like more will be revealed. So let's not censor in the meantime. Like, you know, like, wow, uh, I never heard the argument like down. that. It's just, it's just a bad road to go down. We don't know what we don't know in the moment. And obviously there, you know, there's a limit to this. I'm not going to say that, you know, people should just be able to put like totally absurd, hateful, terrible things on there. But like an example like that, that, yeah. that seems like there's, you know, that seems like I, there's some limit that's been crossed. There was uh, a friend of mine one time said, a mutual friend of ours one time said to me, um, the only debate you bring a gun to is the freedom of speech debate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if I you mean, lose, I, I, you shoot the, you shoot the guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, and I think you've like I, seen I, that generally in the Supreme court too, <laughs> like in the past, you know, and, and it seems like today we're tipping into like this, strange thing where you know it's like there's a million different words that are akin to voldemort now where if you say them everyone oh oh." it's like you know like the harry potter book where you just can't you know it it just offends people to the core and so like well we can't say that um i don't know i don't think that's healthy i don't think that's healthy i realize that you know certain people feel way about certain words but like we 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 just I, i think we need default on the side of free speech rather than not. Those people who are offended by certain words have a psychosis and a delusion that's so strong in their brain that they conflate the noise in their head with fucking reality. I'll give you a couple examples. I was at a coffee shop one time in one of the most liberal coffee shops in the fucking world in Santa Cruz, California, and there were two guys at a table talking about Trump. 
And the lady at the table next to him stood up and starts fucking screaming at them. I don't want to hear his fucking name. And they're like, we weren't saying anything nice about him. And I'm like, oh, this is good. <laughs> you know, I'm glad I got a warm <laughs> cup of coffee. And they're just warring. And and there's a there's a there's a there's other words that we've based on people's skin color that we require a whole we require people when they're born to be offended by this word based on their skin color. And all that is is a narrative inside of people's heads that turns on. And they go into their head because in the outside world, that that word has no meaning. It's just a vibration. But you give a word so much power that you go into your head and tell yourself uh, 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 racial slurs are like that, abortion, Trump. Like they just start up these programs in people's head, these unconscious fucking loops so that they can't see it fresh, right? Yeah, when you, interesting. When you, saw, when you saw a bear, what program – did you see a bear when you were out there? Yeah, we saw a few of them. Um, and yeah. What's the – what was the well, – what do you do? You remember what um, your thoughts when you saw the bear, the one that was closest to you? It's a large animal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're. I mean, they get gigantic up there because they eat. Uh, they try and catch salmon on the salmon run, and so we are timed to that. So they've been literally gorging on this like super fatty fish for you know a month, and they're just they're ready for winter, dude. When when you see a real threat as a human being. I should have Tony Blauer on to ask him about this, but I suspect it. Well, there's two, there's two kinds of people. You've seen the, you've seen the videos of a girl or or like a weight drops on someone in a gym and they're crushed under it. And there's someone going, and then there's the two, there's the different other kind of person who runs over and pulls the weight up. But like right now, if you were sitting in your room and you heard like a, and you looked over and you saw a rattlesnake, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't go in your head. Yeah, you just react like you just you fucking yeah, come out nice. of your head. Yeah, you're like, okay, where the fuck is the bat? Where's my gun? Where's my <laughs> wife? Like, I don't, yeah, like you don't, you, you don't, you 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 become hyper alert on the outside, right? Correct. You don't let some like program start up. Well, that's a rattlesnake, and it's very, those are bad guys, and I should be offended that he got in. I can't believe the exterminator didn't get rid of him. You. Yeah, it's like it's like the, the the bull. It's just crazy. This fucking yeah, and, world we lived in. We live in and with it's people. Like, you know, there are certain words that I'm never going to say, and that I don't right. think certain other people should say. But I also don't believe that they're beyond discussion for the right people. You know, like it just the fact that you know, I I think it sh- we should be having conversations rather than just shutting down speech generally across the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little more. I'm I'm not a little. I'm a way, 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 way more extreme. I think that everyone should say every single word that they want to say. They should also realize that there could be consequences for saying those words. But I also think that like when you if I if I um if I did something to you and you get offended, let's say you call me. um, uh, I find out you, you made fun of my nose. Right. And then and then so I have a choice. I, let's say I'm offended by it. And then throughout my life, people keep saying things about my nose and I'm always offended by it. At some point, I'm just like, I have to get over that. But the people who say sorry to me, what they're really saying to me is that you should be offended by that. Mm, that's do you get what I'm saying? They're, they're, yeah. they're bolstering the story. And it's, it's a, it, I'm, I'm just talking about the deep mechanisms of how the human mind works. Like I, they're just setting the trap up for me to get offended again. 
the, the offense and at the end of the day the offended have to take response if, if they want happiness if they want to be cool as fuck like me and just like live the dream you got you got to just own it it's all it's all you yeah and all- i think sometimes what can happen is there's like a hierarchy where certain people tell other people they should be offended yeah yeah those are the worst those right. those people are actually arguing other people's limitations. Was there anyone in your life, by the way, who said to you, "Hey, don't go to our, the Arctic"? Like, tried to talk you out of it. Um, no, my wife is pretty cool. She was like, "Yeah, do <laughs> it," you know. So, yeah. No, but the, like, here's an here's an interesting example that I that Please. I think you know flows in with this is that I had someone review. She was like a a person who worked at a magazine. They reviewed my book and they said you know, really good book, but like, I think that, you know, it doesn't apply. Uh, it's flaw is that it doesn't apply to, um, I can't remember the exact language. I want to say it was like BIPOC groups and women. It's like, what's BIPOC mean? Um, what is BIPOC? Yeah. It's a basically like people of color, people of color, people of color, people of color and, and women. Is and, Mexican a BIPOC? Uh, that's a good, I think so. Um, Susan, can you find BIPOC for us? Yeah, define it, it sounds for like us. a telescope to me. It sounds like a telescope that I want to own it. Get by from B&H. But the point, the point was though, is that I was like, oh man, like maybe, you know, yeah, like maybe she's right. And my wife goes, I'm a woman. I read the book. Like she's, a, she seems to be implying to me that a person of color or a woman could never be comfortable. Like, oh, these sad people, they could never reach a stage of comfort in their life. They just live in this discomfort all the time from all these forces. My wife's like, it's not me. It's not most people I know, you know? And so I think that there's like, I think that basically, I mean, people, and I need to do this myself, but you know, people like this reviewer, like we need to just shut up and listen more. Are you just assuming something about an entire other group of people? Right. <laughs> right. Right. Based on this narrative, like, let's not do that. Like, again, let's default to having conversations and listening more. Yeah, there you go. Hey, yeah. do you know what's crazy yeah. too? Here's what, here's what, here's what's crazy too. So, so um, black, when you say black people, you, you're choosing a color of skin based on the spectrum of light that's reflected off of them. When you say indigenous people, you're saying two totally different things, something totally different. And that's where that is, that is at the essence that right there, that word and that idea is what is the root of systemic racism. That's what keeps people in that curates and maintains racism when you see the world like that. Because if she would have said that's not applicable to people who've been raped. I could be like, okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about why Michael Easter's book doesn't play. But black is just like they want us then to characterize all black people, but all people based on the color. You cannot do that. You, you, you cannot. It's just color. There's, I need, there's no example. There's no objectification. You're forcing me to build a racist paradigm. And by racist, I mean in the essence of judging all people based on the color of skin. It's fucking insanity. It's building yeah. a prison for fucking people of color. Don't do that to people of color. Well, we, yeah, not not to the point that's like bad. Like I understand. My dad came from the Middle East. He opened a liquor store. It's a very common job for Middle Eastern people. Other ones, Armenians open Oriental rug shops. Um, uh, they're the Uber drivers in L.A. I'm not saying you can't be um, discriminate 
like a healthy level of discrimination, not uh, maybe that's not the right word, prejudice, discriminate. Like, um, you know that if a snake has a big mandible and that fucking rattle thing on the back, you should probably stay away from it. You know, the kids with their pants showing underwear showing down and they're walking down the street. It's okay to cross the street because they're, they're trying to act hard. Like I'm not saying you can't use your brain, but this, this shit is fucking nuts. What that lady said about you. I mean, it's a, well, I think for me, it's also like, no life. I just need to like, listen to other people and see what happens. It's like, you know, I, I was like, Oh, maybe she has a point. But then, you know, my wife brought up that point and then I look at my readership, the people that I get reached out, you know, reach out to me on things like Instagram or email and dude, like more than half of my readers are women and they come <laughs> from all backgrounds. So it's like, like it was just, that's one of just those because you're like, hot though. That has nothing to do with your right. Exactly. That's just because you're hot. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's just interesting. I mean, it basically just told me that I kind of like shut up, observe, listen, and, you know, make a judgment from there. But I, I, again, back to the main point is that I don't think we should censor. I think censoring is a slippery slope, you know? Yep. Yeah. Even, even hate speech, because what you call hate speech, all they'll do is change the definition of hate. You, you can't even trust anyone to define hate. You cannot, you cannot stop hate speech either. You have to let all speech go. Have you been to Africa? Uh, I've been to Morocco. Okay. And have you been to India? I haven't been to India, no. Or China? I've been to China, yep. What took you there? Um, I have a mom who's pretty cool. You know, she single mom, single parent. I'm an only child. Um, my dad wasn't really around. And um, she sort of lifted herself up out of uh, drug addiction and, you know, created a pretty decent life for us. It was, it was interesting because we never had nice cars when I was a kid. We always had kind of just like a, you know, a minivan that was kind of crappy and needed a few repairs, but she would save money to every summer. Um, we'd go somewhere international, somewhere interesting. Cause she thought it could be something we could both learn from, you know, and that would improve us as people. And so one of those years we ended up going to China for like two weeks. That's how I ended up there. So I was probably mm. like, I don't know how old I was. I must've been like 14. So this was a while ago. Do you have siblings? Nope. So just, just you and your mom. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Is she still alive? Yep. She's still around. She actually has a uh, winter place in Vegas now. That's not too far from where I live. So we see her in the winter. That's good. Oh, that's, and what does she think about your book? Yeah, she's fine. She, I mean, she likes it. Like she reads a ton. Um, But what's been interesting is like, some people, the, the book has really affected and impacted, you know, I'll have people be like, yeah, I quit my job because your book. Or like, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. I got divorced because your book, I realized it was in a shitty oh, situation. Shit. Oh, just, damn. Yeah. I mean, stuff like that. It's like heavy. And she's like, yeah, that was really good. And I liked it, but you know, like, I'm not going to quit my job because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, shut up, mom. <laughs> So yeah, I think that she, I think she, um, she likes it. I don't think she understands it to a a deep level that some people do. You know, it's like, I think there are certain, certain pieces of, I guess, art or whatever you want to call it, information hit certain people at the right time. And that seems to have, it seems to have hit a lot of people at the right time. Um, Were you raised to avoid discomfort? I mean, Yes and no. You know, uh, she would let me kind of go outside till sundown. 
I was in scouting. I would do a lot of stuff outside. Um, but also, you know, I didn't, there's also a limit there because she was also working all the time. And like, you know, she wasn't going to take me on these like crazy adventures outside. I mean, we'd go to these other countries. So that was like, of course, a form of discomfort. Cause especially because this was, you know, 20, 25 years ago when, I mean, even then people weren't traveling as much as they do now. And we went to a lot of countries that just like they had never seen a white boy before, you know, like I remember yeah. we were in one country and there was a group of like 20 people just following me, just observing me. Like, what where was that? Was this that uh, this was in Thailand. This was in Thailand. Thailand. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was before they really made their push uh, for tourism and yeah, just, you know, fascinating. So yes and no, you know, I, I, I definitely wasn't a, uh, like grew up on a farm or in some like super extreme poverty. Like we were comfortable. We were by no means rich, but we were like, you know, middle-class, whatever, um, so yeah, uh, Susan, do you, do you remember that movie, um, about those, or have you seen this movie, Michael Easter, um, about these boys, they went to, they were from Baltimore and they go to school in Kenya. I think it may have won the Academy Award five or six years ago, or was nominated oh, yeah, no, maybe 15 years ago. Before. I forget the name of it though. It's these, it's these kids in Baltimore. They end up going to a school in Kenya it was when Bush was president because I remember it was when the embassy got bombed. So it's, it's fuck. How long ago was that? <sighs> anyway, Africa's Africa's fascinating just in terms of the whole the whole idea of racism and just judging people by their color because you you see that um, people aren't like in this where it's cultural it's cultural shit that we're we're actually talking about and not people's skin color. Like if you see people with the same skin color with completely different cultures, it's just like Armenians in L.A. are nothing like Armenians in. Yerevan, the capital of Armenia. Nothing. Mm-hmm. They're completely mm. different fucking people. And um, oh, is that what it is? Boys of Barak. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Do you Barak. know that movie by any chance? No, I don't know it. Oh. I'll write it down though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll send you that too. It's. I think you'll be fascinated by it. Africa and India are just cool because they're such. So, you've been to China, so you know they're just totally different social experiments that are going on. If you haven't been to these places, it's like what you said before. You don't know what you don't know. And it's like until yeah. you go to these other continents, you're just like, well, you have had now that experience in Ar- the Arctic. Like you, like you know what silence is, and other people like you talk about that. So, oh, sorry, I'm going to completely shift here. Have you been to that? Um, have you been to that room you talk about, the silence room? No, I haven't. I want to go. I was like trying to get him to let me go. He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Uh, what so what was that room called? The odor. Uh, or, Orfield labs in Minnesota. And I think he's retired. I was emailing with him recently. Um, yeah, Orfield labs and they had used it. I think he had updated me on what he's doing with, cause when I talked to him, he was about to retire and in theory, put it to as a nonprofit and use it for like research into, um, PTSD treatment and a handful of other things. But yeah, I think it got named the quietest room on earth, I think by the Guinness book of world records, but like, you can't just, you know, he doesn't let people just like go in there and hang out and as you have to, um, have a good reason. Hmm. Dude, I want to go in there for two, three days. <laughs> yeah. He says that people, like some people freak out. Um, but the, the people tend to freak out the first like 10, 20 minutes. And then all of a sudden they like calm down and they get a lot more aligned and, does a lot of interesting things for people. And that's just in an hour. Weird. Hey, look at the floor there. What? It, so 
Oh, yeah. Goodness. So you're standing oh, like they so need, bad. um, yeah, the foam killing or the sound killing foam cone things are just around everything. You, so you stand on that sort of grid in the middle. So you have something to stand on. It's like a cube of sound killing foam, essentially. Trippy. Um, well, what if, what if the off gassing in there just fucking takes 10 years of your life away? <laughs> <laughs> from all yeah, that man. hey what what's that room right there it says the quietest room on earth and, and there's like shit floating in the air let me see that one it's incredible yeah pretty have you crazy. done, ha- have you done moab michael time. moab yeah in utah i guess um, you're in I've vegas you have yeah. been there yeah, yeah pretty yeah. quiet yeah. pretty quiet there or it used yeah. to be yeah, it's it's definitely quiet. I mean, we even now we live in a relatively quiet place, but we moved. We used to live on the other side of the city that was a little bit less developed. And I had a friend from LA visit me, and he stayed in our you know guest room. And he comes out in the morning, like it was like eight or nine. He's like, he just first thing he just looks at me, he goes, "Dude, it is so quiet here. I'm freaking out." <laughs> you know, because he's used to just sleeping in like horns. He lives in like West Hollywood or something. You know. So, yeah. Um, I think we got derailed from the Japanese people in their rooms. I probably interrupted you. Oh. 500,000 people. They're in their rooms. Oh, they're afraid of sickness. They're afraid of disease. So they're in there because they're afraid of the outside world. That's the Afraid reason. of the outside world, yeah. So they just, yeah, they don't, some of them haven't left their room for like seven years. I think the address, I think the average is like three years. And how do they make money, those people? Um, I assume they just, I mean, it's possible that they could work from just that room, but I think a lot of them just like live, you know, live with their parents too or something, you know, it's just like, oh, right. Almost like we would treat a disabled, you know, if we had a disabled child or something. And and they're probably ecstatic about the coronavirus. People who don't want to go outside are stoked on this shit, right? Yeah. They're like, oh great. Now I now no one's telling me I have to go outside. <laughs> I'm when my kids were when my kids were born, we didn't do this on purpose, but when my first kid was born, he was just born on the living room floor. And then I, after like I don't know, like a, a month, I remember one time seeing my wife like turn on the kitchen sink and put him in the kitchen sink. I'm like, Oh shit. Is that his first bath? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, Oh, that's crazy. Cause he came out of the vagina. Right. And he's just covered in all that goop. And then you just kind of, he just, he starts, bre- he just, he just starts breastfeeding and he never got a bath or wiped off or really anything. Just that shit just dries and falls off. He flakes off around the house. And with my twins, it was probably three months before they had their first bath. Oh, wow. And my kids are now two five-year-olds and a seven-year-old, um, never wore a mask, never took, we never take any precautions. They almost never, ever wear shoes, um, uh, only if like they're skateboarding or doing activities that, you know, could, that they've fallen and cried. But, it, but my kids don't get sick. And you talk about that in your book about being, um, about health. And although I didn't do those things on pur- about health and germs and bacteria, and although I didn't do those things on purpose, um, it's fascinating because my kids don't get sick because they yeah, were covered it's... in mom's bacteria upon their birth when their hypothalamus was the most active in cataloging bacteria and viruses and sicknesses, and then they breastfed for eighteen months apiece, and they're they're like bomb proof. 
Yeah, there's Knock some on. interesting work I talk about in the book. There's a I met with this lady who studies the Hadza hunter-gatherer tribe. And um, what's interesting about them is they don't get any of really the stomach sicknesses that we do. So they don't get Crohn's, they don't get IBD, they don't get colitis, they don't get colon cancer, they don't get, you know, all these different things. Wow. And the reason they think is because they are exposed to so much natural bacteria that their body has just built up an immune system that can deal with that sort of thing. You know, so they, they study, it's pretty funny how they study this. They basically, um, study their shit more or less. So this researcher, I know she like, she goes and she buys like Tupperwares at Whole Foods and she goes, travels to Africa and spends all this time with them, collects their shit. And then they get shit from people who live in a city in Italy and they compare it. And the gut bacteria is just so radically different. You know, what was, what was fascinating about that study at the time is that the Hadza had all these gut bacteria that we have traditionally thought are bad for us. And oh, they didn't shit. have much of the stuff that we think is good for us. Like all the stuff in the probiotics that we eat and in like yes. probiotic yogurt, they didn't have any of that. And yet this microbiome that they've created has really impacted their uh, health and made them healthier as a whole. They also don't, I mean, they don't get really any lifestyle diseases. You know, they, they do get, they will get, um, you know, viruses and illnesses like that, sort of acute sicknesses. It, it, it was weird when when everyone was freaking out. Uh, well, I guess the people still are. But in the early days, people were freaking out about the coronavirus for like a year because my boys, it, I, I don't know how much time you spend around children, but they just they put their hands on everything. And then they put their hands in their nose and in their eyes and in their mouth. And it's just rinse and repeat all day all day. There's no stopping it. I mean, it's just like literally you go somewhere and they'll drag their hand along a wall of a building in a strip mall for fucking half a mile. Yeah. Lather their face with it. It's like, I'm like, Hey, uh, fuck it. What am I going to tell them? Like, yeah, it's futile. It's futile. And and meanwhile, I'm walking by other kids who are double mass. I'm like, (laughs) yeah, it's just, it's just bizarre. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting time. And I think it, you know, for me, it's like, I think the whole situation highlighted how I think we did a pretty good job figuring things out, like in such a short time, but still there was just like, how do we know what we know? (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do we know what we know? Oh, you're more optimistic than me. Still, still like people don't, I mean, I don't think we can say anything like with absolute certainty about that, that virus. And it's just like, you know, and people have such firm stances on it. And I'm just like, dude, I hell if I know, (laughs) you know, I think we, well, it's interesting. I think we do know, and and I'm open to to talking about this, but I think we do know that if you, that when this happened, your best bet for survival was to um, stop eating added sugar and refined carbohydrates and to start exercising and to stop drinking alcohol, basically to do anything that would inhibit the um, NK cells and T cells from doing their job. Um, which uh, which are deeply, deeply disturbed by um, eating sugar because it causes such a hormonal spike. It basically puts a traffic jam in your bloodstream. I know a lot of people like this. The new cool thing is to say sugar isn't toxic or it's okay to eat sugar. It's re- Sugar has dramatic, dramatic effects immediately on your NK cells and T cells and their ability to stop sickness. Um, so I, I, feel like, I feel like I don't know anyone who – I feel like I can't find a single story of someone who died who was healthy. And there's two people that people keep bringing up in my, you know, whenever I say that, there's these two people that they keep bringing up, but um, 
man, there's 8 billion or 7 billion people on the planet. We know why there weren't a lot of deaths in Haiti, you know, because there's not a fucking lot of McDonald's there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that definitely, definitely being active and having your weight in an ideal range seem to be protective as a whole. I know some people with the who exception are, of like pro bike riders and shit. Like if you're a pro bike rider, yeah. like, like, and you live on living off of goo packs that, I mean, you basically have no immune system. Yeah. Well, I think their, 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 their body is basically like you train so much that we just, we need to like keep this train going. Like fuck your immune system. And then when, <laughs> right, the, when the virus right. comes, you know, cause their body's like, <laughs> clearly we need to adapt to this. And so then when the virus yeah. comes along, I think those people had, um, yeah, at a certain point, I do think that probably being super, like a shitload of training probably wasn't as good if you had just backed off, you know, like I, I yeah. know a few people who you're like, Whoa, that person's so fit. They train all the time, but they got the virus. It's like, well, yeah, that's because all their body's done for the past four years is like build up fitness at the expense of the immune system. This is something that mm-hmm. Daniel Lieberman at Harvard has talked about how sort of overtraining can compromise your uh, immune system. And so I'm not, you know, but yeah, and it's tricky. And then you have, you, you have outliers too, where it's like, man, this person seemed to be doing all the right things and they got really sick. But as a whole, I think that we can safely say that if you were sort of living like an asshole for lack of a better way to put it, yeah. Um, and you got coronavirus, probably you were going to have a harder time with it. Yeah. 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 And of course, of, of, everyone get tons of people get sick just all the time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. A, definitely a strange time in like health and how to live. And, and also I think even just information around health, that was, that was what was interesting is there there's just so much out there. It's like, how do you decide anything? Like, right. I don't know. <laughs> I like the idea though. Um, I don't know if I read it in your book, but um, ancient, ancient meals aren't causing modern sicknesses. And so that's kind of, I, I like to kind of like think of that, like is it, sort of like my, my true North. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I think we can, yeah, it's like if you're drinking, you know, three sodas a day, that's probably not going to be good for you. Or honestly, even one soda. And and the reason why I say that is because even a little bit of peanut butter in, in my um, Toyota Sienna, my van, just that, and if I put a little bit, like just like one little dollop in the gas tank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know we're more resilient than a Sienna, but like, (laughs) yeah, I can't uh, can't even endorse, I can't even endorse a little bit of soda unless, unless unless you were in the Arctic and it's all you had. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I feel like I just kind of default to like, you know, eat foods that are ingredients rather than that contain ingredients. That's pretty decent advice, you know? Um, and that's even smarter than what I said. I like it. Yes. If you, you know, if someone goes to wherever the hell they go eat and they have like some crazy burger and fries, like, I don't think it's going to kill you in the long term. but like, let's not make this a regular thing. Like part of, part of enjoying modern life is the fact that you can be like, Oh shit, man, you know, this insert any weird food combination that you might see on triple D is just like, hell yeah, I'll eat that. Yeah, right. Shake, but check, like, shake, shake do that all the time though. And we're going to have some problems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
that's good stuff. And um, and and sort of in sort of this uh, a regulation, you know, at sixteen, I would probably go to McDonald's and get a um, twenty piece chicken McNugget and a, and a shake. Mm-hmm. And if for some reason I were to go to McDonald's today, I'd get a six piece chicken McNugget and I'd get water. Yeah. Like there's no fucking way like at 49 or no shit. I keep saying 49 and 50, 50. Uh, <laughs> wow. There's no way at 50. I, I just turned 50. I'm having trouble. I'm having trouble. <laughs> yeah. I think that's part of it too is like, and I think that, um, the way the nature of food today, I think makes it much easier to overeat. Yes. You know? I still, I, mean, I still overeat even, even like I still overeat on the reg. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I, I mean, if I'm going to overeat like potatoes and meat, say, I mean, it's much harder to over overeat when we look at it from just like a caloric load standpoint, than it would be, you know, nachos or something like that. You know? Right. So, well, the nachos uh, you feel in the morning, the potato and eggs, at least by the time you wake up, you feel yeah, a, a little bit better. I, I, I had the liver King on the podcast. Do you know who that is? Uh, yeah, I just became familiar with him. Someone was like, tell me about him. He's like jacked and eats liver. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I find him like, I find him, um, just deeply inspirational. He's the living embodiment of your book. He's, 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 um, Oh, anyway, he's living embodiment of your book. And, and, um, I had him on the podcast and at the end of the podcast, he said to me, we got off. He goes, Oh, you just taught me something. I go, what's that? He goes to set time limits before I come on podcasts. <laughs> it's like, uh, he sent me a nice, he sent me a nice note afterwards. He goes, those two hours and 40 minutes flew by fast, but, but yeah, <laughs> right on. Yeah. He's, he seems, he seems like a good dude. He's, he's a great guy. It was fat. It's fascinating to me. Um, he's a great guy because he's just a good role model. He's just living his life in a way that like people should pick and choose from like what you like. You know what I mean? I'm not saying do all of it, but if you can, if you can, there's lessons to be learned. It's like, it's like your book. It's it's exactly like your book. Pick and choose. Like I'm going to start rucking because of your book. What right some of my closest friends have been rucking for fucking 10 years and they're fucking seal team six guys. And though I'm just like, okay, they ruck. Okay. They ruck. It's so funny. Then this fucking journalist fucking writes about it in his book. And I'm like, Oh, I'm going to start doing that. And I'm like, God, <laughs> I had these guys telling me about it for like, I'm gonna start rucking. Cause your book. Yeah. Right. On. Well, it, my wife generally has always just kind of laughed at all my weird fitness shit I do. And even she, we rock now, dude. That's awesome. So sold her. That was the hardest sell in my life. And she's in. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It's cool. I like it because, um, of the walking, I was it in your book. You said that you did it and you kept a heart rate of like 156. Did you talk about your heart rate in it? About getting um, strong? That was, or maybe was, was in a pot. Yeah, that was when I was packing out the, the caribou. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you, so you, do you wear a heart rate monitor a lot? I, I used to a bit. Now I can kind of just gauge it based on how I feel, you know, once you kind of, I don't know, see the data and I feel like, oh yeah, I'm probably in between 120, 130 or whatever it might be. So, yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but um, I think my, you, I, I think you took the words out of my mouth though. With you know, you have people at the extreme. There's so many people at the extremes now, like him, right? Um, 
And I think that you're totally spot on with like, what tends to happen is that you get all these tribes in like the health and fitness world where like the people, some people might be like, this guy is like the Lord and savior do everything he does. And then you have another group who's like, everything he says is completely wrong. Right. Or fuck you. He's on steroids. I'm like, what do I care? Yeah. And it's just like, you know what? There's probably like the dude probably is doing some stuff that you shouldn't do maybe, but he's probably doing a lot of stuff that would be good for you too. Like his overall message as a whole is totally fine. You know? And so I think that back to the pick and choose thing, it's like, dude has some great ideas. Pick the ones that you think work for you and are going to work for you. If there's something in there he's doing that you don't think is going to work for you, don't do it. But you can find other ideas from people. It's like we're so extreme on like you got to do all this and or all of this yeah. or whatever. It's like, you know, you pick a little bit. That's why I think like you see a lot of hate around diets online and it's like try it. It's yes, the worst that can happen. Yes, you you yes. quit it in a month, but you probably learn something about how you eat and about yourself. And I think that, you know, over time you just start to like take these little things from other places and you figure out what works. There was this guy uh, posted this thing the other day. His name is Raw Earth. You may remember him. He was Ro- he was a CrossFitter and his name was Ronnie Teasdale and he used to wear jorts. Do you know who that is? <laughs> Sounds familiar. Yeah. Raw Earth. And ba- he made a post the other day that said, Hey, if you want to become God, um, take um, ultimate responsibility in everything and anything basically in your world. Mm. take full personal responsibility accountability and i reposted that and i said this is really going to offend some of you i go but you don't have to be offended you could just try it but you're not going to because <laughs> it's way too fucking hard to take personal accountability and responsibility for when the guy flips you off for when your dog dies for every single fucking thing you do in your life but it's so funny that you would get offended by it because he just you can just try it instead of get offended yeah you he know, just told you how know. to try how to do it but you're yeah, not it's like don't know what we don't know yeah um, on one level, doing, doing hard things really like it's good for you. And then, and then, um, it's like, uh, you shouldn't meditate when shit's bad. You should meditate when shit's good. So when shit gets bad, you have that tool. That's not the time to be like, okay, I need to start working on this tool. My breathe. <laughs> you want to have some breathing chops before the bad shit happens. But also like, um, <sighs> there's there's like real hardships sometimes they can't be replicated like um like growing up like 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 the way you mentioned like you were you were brought up in a household by a single mom who went through a drug addiction like that can't be replicated I, 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 I feel like you, and you can't even come close to it and you're never going to fake it. And it, and it's made you of who you are and why you're so successful and, um, why, you know, to enjoy, um, the how you can, um, put things in context of being in the art, a shitty plane ride out, same ride back. It's the best plane you've ever been on in your life. I mean, <laughs> it's, it, 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 I don't know where I'm going with it, but, but it's, all the shitty – I had this guy on the on the show. Um, he's a writer. What was that guy's name? Michael Creek. He did three self-published books like Fuck You, Fuck Me, and Fuck Your Dog or something. I can't remember what they were. <laughs> nice. Um, but Kyle Creek. I know. What is Kyle it? Creek. Kyle, Kyle Creek. Kyle Creek. Do you know who that is, Michael? No, I don't. Chance? I'll have okay. to look him up. And I, I'm sorry, I, 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 none of these people that I brought up, you sh- like, you should know. By the way, I'm not insinuating that. I mean, you should know who Stephen King is if I bring him up. But none of these other people is just a podunk podcast. But um, you've done all the big ones already. You're really slumming it now. But um, 
he basically said that like all the shitty things that happen in your life, eventually they turn to fertilizer and like and, and the greatest plants in the world will grow from them. And when he said that, I was like, oh, shit, that's what it's like um, being a, like a, a comedian. Like the time I shit in the van was the worst time of my experience in my fucking life. My kid's vomiting in there because I'm shitting in there. But now it's like the funniest story I own. This guy right here. Oh, they call him the captain. Okay, cool. I think you'd like him just because he's he what he self published and killed it. Like killed it. Nice. Which, which is yeah, kind him, of fun man. to see, right? Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. But do you feel that in your life that like that your real hardships, like you talk about this Arctic hardship, but that the real hardship came in your youth and that's really where you got your chops. Like, yeah, I think that, I mean, I think the lesson is I was talking about this with um, someone the other day is that like life is always going to have problems. Like, you know, it's not, I think it's uh, some, it's like Sam Harris would talk about how, you know, life is like playing a video game. If you get to a level and there's like nothing to do on it, it's like, it's not a video game, right? Like you're always oh. going to have problems. We can't expect to not have problems. And so I think that the way to live is to sort of put those in context that like, I'm probably going to grow from these. These are experiences that, that I can use to learn something from and then grow from. And that's definitely been, that's definitely been my experience. And I think too, if you look at that research I referenced before, you know, if, if, everything just always goes terribly wrong for you. Like all the time, that's probably not good. Um, but having like a normal amount of bad things happen to you, I think can be good. You know, I look back on that and like, um, okay. So for example, my mom part of, for her job, she would travel about a third of the year and we're from a third of the half of the year. So I had, I always had this rotating cast of nannies. I'd have a nanny for like a year or two. Then I'd have a new nanny. Then I'd have a new nanny. Then I'd have a new nanny, right? And so you could see that that would be like kind of strange. But at the same time, what do I do for a living now? I talk to people I don't know. I learn to read people. I learn uh, about people. I watch their quirks. Well, I learned how to do that by having to deal with this rotating cast of nannies because I'd have to like learn how to like adapt myself to fit with them, to communicate with them, to understand what they were all about, right? If I didn't have that, awareness from my mom, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. So it's become this trial that I had as a kid has actually become an asset for me now. And I think we all have examples like that of something that in the moment seemed like, man, this is tough, but that we can now use as an asset. You can even thank the people in your life. Oh, totally. Yeah. Boy, it almost sounds like you take responsibility and accountability for your life. (laughs) (laughs) it's an insane concept um (laughs) rarity these days for sure um yeah i think you just gotta you know own things and some things are look some things are hard to own i've done things where i'm like that took me a while to own up to but you know there might be something i'm doing right now that i'm unaware of that i'll have to own up to later right i think it's like you know there's this evolution for sure so i'm sure i'm sure you guys have experienced that as well Oh, oh yeah. man. Uh, yeah. Let, let, the, the, but, but it really is true. The, the more discipline I have, the more accountability I have, the more responsibility I take, the happier and happier I come. It's, it's, like, it's, it's almost addicting to constantly refine your habits to like, like, l- l- like l- allow less and less 
to be outside of your personal accountability and responsibility. Mm-hmm. Dog threw dog threw up in the house. You don't get mad at the dog. Right. You left the wrapper. You left the plastic wrapper out that he ate and he threw up. Totally. Yes. You 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 dog chewed your shoes. Well, why did you get a dog? That's what dogs do. They chew shoes. Yeah, as you expect the dog to not ever chew anything. Yeah, <laughs> someone flipped you off while you were driving. Well, that's what happens when you drive. People flip each other off. It's part of the it's part of the game. <laughs> yeah, get in where you fit in, bitch. Um, what was it like being on Rogan? Oh, it was fun, man. He's he's a, he's a good dude. Um, super nice, really chill. Uh, you know, it's like you expect a ride and it was definitely right. You're like, it's not the standard podcast where you're going to, and yours isn't like that either, which I've, which I've enjoyed. Cause I get the same questions all the time. And, um, we definitely haven't like, like what here. was it like being on Rogan? <laughs> <laughs> That's why I saved it for the end. That's why I That's saved what it I was for the say. end. <laughs> no, yeah, it was fun. He's a good dude. Um, yeah. Is I it like unsettling? Him. Like you're like, okay, I, I'm either going to hit one out of the park or I'm going to fuck myself. I'm going to fall on a sword because it is such a great, it's a great opportunity. Yeah. For me, it's like, you know, you learn, you're going on there and you go, Oh, this is awesome. And then you go, yeah, this is awesome. Cause there's like 200 million people who listen to that. You go, Holy wait, 200 million people. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of people. Let's (laughs) yeah. You're like, you know, and you can't, so you got to be careful, but you can't be so careful that you're like, Yes. No. You know, so it's just, right. you, you just kind of go in there and, and I'll tell you what, like he's so skilled at what he does that like, you just kind of forget. And then you look up and you thought a half an hour had gone by, but somehow, you know, it was three hours or whatever. So, yeah. I'm panicking that when he asked me to come on, I'm going to have to pee in the middle of the show. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, well, what he does is there's a big, I'm going to tell him, no, fuck you. No I'm not going see. on. There's a big bucket under the desk and you just pee right there. No one actually <laughs> realizes that time. That's insider information for everyone. Thank <laughs> you. And, and, and did you flew out there. Yeah. Flew out there. Um, it's got this little kind of like the recording studio I mentioned before. It's kind of this little unmarked space and, uh, yeah. And the actual studio itself is pretty small. So it's good. And, and you just go in and contribute to the to the massive library this dude has. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Sit down, start talking, and it's like, oh, yeah, we should probably hit record, you know, because you you get on some random topic as they're kind of getting everything dialed in, which I'm I I'm pretty sure is calculated, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get someone talking, so yeah, man, it was cool. Fuck, you did it. Have you been on Fox? I haven't. No. Have you been on CNN? No, I haven't done a ton of TV. I've done a lot of podcasts. Um, haven't done a ton of TV though. Yeah. Personal accountability and hardship doesn't seem to be a popular subject with mainstream <laughs> media. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too, because like the book has done, the book has done really well and we didn't get a ton of like traditional media book reviews, you know, like, and I think that that speaks to where people are finding value now. Mm-hmm. who do we trust now? You know, like, yeah, I know people who got great write-ups in the times and it's things didn't, it didn't move the dial for him at all. And it's just, that's just kind of crazy. But I think that's where we are now where there's, you know, um, that sort of thing isn't as, isn't as important. It's not, I'm not saying it's not important anymore, but I am saying that it probably isn't as important as it once was. Well, 
you wrote a really crazy inspirational book and the timing couldn't have been better because we have a fucking whole uh, generation generations of people who are unwilling to who, who not unwilling it's not even their fault they've been brought up to take the easy way we were raised to take the easy way and 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 the most important thing is that there's no life fulfillment in there the hard way is where all the fun is it's where it's where all the pretty girls are. It's where all the laughing is. It's where all the money is. It's where all the beautiful um, frolicking is. It's 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 everything. There's nothing. There's nothing. The most fun most kids have had, people have had in their whole entire life was going out in the street and playing flag football with their friends in the seventh grade. And then after that, their life is just fucking downhill. And it's like, yeah, dude, I think you nailed it. It doesn't have to be that way. Doesn't have to be yeah. that way. Um, I said Joe Rogan was me the final question. One more question: Are you going to have kids? Uh, I don't know. Maybe we haven't. Yeah. You know, we're kind of leaning towards no for now, but you know, yeah. more will be revealed. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Two well, kids. My, my I have three kids. My my kids. wife was. Um, I probably shouldn't tell you this, or don't let your wife listen to this part. But we we weren't going to have kids, and we weren't going to get married. That was just like all tool of the man. You're a tool if you do any of that stuff. Yeah. And then we started hanging out with these ladies who were like who had kids who were like breastfeeding and that shit got my wife all jazzed up. Yeah. And then one lady said to my wife, she says if you don't have kids you might regret it. If you do have kids you won't regret it. So then she was like, "Hey, we're going let's get one." Mm, I was like, "All right." So then we then we pulled the goalie and then from there, it was just three years of just doing it with no goalie. And then kids just start showing up everywhere. Yeah, that's now what happens, have, apparently. Yeah, now we got three kids. But nice. but I started I, – I, there's no rush. I, I'm Like I said, I'm 50, and my oldest is seven. So there's no rush. But um, And then we ended up – we got married, too, just in case, like, one of us – and, and I thought that was stupid. But now I'm actually, like, really glad to call her my wife. It's so weird. Yeah. It's yeah, really, really it goes, weird. Man. Yeah, I can't we, even rationalize. We don't know what it. we don't. We don't know what we don't know in the moment, right? Right. 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 Yeah, dude. All right. Well, hey, thank you. Um, yeah, that was super fun. I enjoyed it. Good. Thank you. That that's really sweet of you to say. That that's the biggest compliment people can give me. My mom always told me to treat my podcast like it's my living room, and I know some nice. people, and uh, and that people, no matter whether you like them or not, they should leave and 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 you should have explored something deep inside of both of you and everyone should leave wiser. So, and I feel like I got that from you. Yeah, this was super fun. I liked it. Cool. I I'm going to email you, um, my phone number. Oh, maybe I did already, but feel free to text me anytime. I don't sleep on my phone. Any ideas, anyone you would suggest for me to be on the podcast. I'm, I am like a podcast slut. Like every day I'm going, I'm going to be Joe Rogan and Howard Stern had a baby and I'm the guy. (laughs) I like it, man. Yeah. I'll send you, I'll send you some names. Be some good people from the book that you can pull from. All right, brother. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for the great read. I loved it. Yeah. Thank you a lot, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. Bye for now.